The following podcast contains spoilers and adult language. We recommend watching the movie beforehand, but hey, that isn't your bag? No worries. You do you. Brought to you by our patrons over at patreon.com slash matineemanities. If you'd like to support the show, consider becoming a patron. Donations start at just $1 a month, and half of all proceeds after hosting costs will go towards actual manatee habitat preservation, because we like to pay it forward by giving back. Enjoy the show. Mostly random scribblings and notes about what happens in the movie. <laughs> so, we'll see what happens. Be honest, was the double viewing just because, you know, I have a history of being kind of aggressive and, uh, terms belligerent towards you about <laughs> about the Batman franchise did you watch out of concern to make sure that uh, you were up to snuff or, or was it unrelated it was more the latter not gonna lie it was partly the former but I think I made the mistake of taking notes during my first viewing. 
so I didn't really catch a lot of the details that had gone on. I actually just finished watching it right before we started recording, just because I wanted to have it fresh in my mind and also not to think about writing stuff down. And I didn't realize how much stuff I actually missed the first time I watched it. Because, like, I'll be honest with you, like, the first time I saw this movie was four days ago. Like, I've never seen it before. That doesn't surprise me. Thanks. Uh, yeah. You know, I my my intention is to be a little bit kinder to you this time around. But first of all, how dare you? <laughs> and uh, who do you think you are? Quite frankly. I mean, no, 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 <laughs> no, no. Let, me, let me, let me, let me just defend myself, okay? Go ahead, go ahead. Okay, first off, this movie came out when I was seven, so I think I was slightly younger than the, the movie's target demo. Also, I was never like a big comic book kid. I don't know, I was, I was like more video game focused than I was comic book focused, so stuff like Superman, Batman, Spider-Man, X-Men, all, all that sort of stuff, just kind of, like I knew it existed, but it didn't really interest me all that much. So... That's my excuse, and I'm sticking to it. I mean, I've heard this excuse before. I'm gonna overlook it because I care about you as a person. <laughs> um, Thank you. But uh, you, yeah, I mean, you you bring up a good point, even though I at the same age definitely saw this movie. No, one of the things, and this is something obviously being a seven year old at the time and the internet being what it wasn't in 1992, I wasn't aware, but just, just, Kind of looking around and, and reading up a little bit on the movie in my spare time obsessively. <laughs> I mean, apparently this was kind of a big deal. Parents, there is some backlash about this not being quote-unquote child-appropriate, which we'll definitely get into as we go, because we jump in a little bit. Oh yeah. 
So, even though technically, you know, there's this concept that I think we've kind of gotten way past in, uh, you know, the 2000s, but there's this concept set by Christopher Reeve Superman and the 1960s Adam West Batman and the Wonder Woman show, Hulk show, all these things. There's this concept that uh, comic movies were for kids and Tim Burton was like, well, no, I'm gonna make a uh, semi-erection reference in this movie, and, uh... <laughs> I don't know how semi that was. There's a lot of blatant sexual references in this film. Yes. Probably say hi, welcome to more matinee manatees. <laughs> I don't know when we're gonna start that, but we'll figure it out. Okay, so go ahead. Okay, you, um, I'm, I'm the, I'm the guest. So do, do what you gotta do. I feel like we're both kind of guests. This is mostly Penn's podcast. Oh, right. I forgot. Okay, so last time we, we were messing with you, audience. We didn't kill Ben that time. This time, we definitely killed Ben. Ben's yeah. dead. Yep. Yeah, and uh, we're going to prove it because he's not going to be here for at least the next two episodes. Yeah, which pretty much means he's, he's, he's gone. gone. He's gone. Yeah. So it's just going to be, uh, be Anthony and Tony and myself and other people later on. Who knows? Yeah, I'm Anthony. Hello. Yeah. Hello. And I, I know you're talking to the audience, but and I, I am Sam, which is a movie that we probably will never review for this podcast. <laughs> well played. That was pretty good. Thank you. 
that is how I sign off every episode, though, so it's a little bit weird. And, uh, this episode, we decided that, you know, it's been a year since we actually released uh, a Batman episode, and what better time to do another one than the Christmas slash Thanksgiving slash Hanukkah slash Kwanzaa slash Festivus holiday season and watch Batman Returns. Which is pretty much a a Christmas movie. It's a Christmas movie. Yeah. I mean, it takes place around Christmas. Yeah. Despite the fact that the movie was released in June of 1992, it's still a Christmas movie. (laughs) Like, I'm not complaining, but, like, you'd think this would have It would have been a perfect time to release this movie in, like, early to mid-December. But now it's like, now we're releasing this in mid-June 1992. So this was before... I'm not well-versed on release dates and the... Behind that on the production side, but blockbusters, which this was, especially for '92, typically were a summer release. In our lifetime, I think of Harry Potter kind of changing the game as far as when you release tentpole films, Harry Potter being a series that started being released around the holidays. Yeah. So, whatever the setting was within the film, I think there was just kind of this rule where it said, Oh, it's a it's a blockbuster movie, and I don't think Tim Burton intended for this to be a franchise, but now it became a franchise, and so it had to be a summer release, regardless. But yeah, nowadays this probably would have been released, you know late November, early December, right? I, I just think based on the, the setting of the movie that it would probably have made more sense to be released in the winter time. 
I think Harry Potter, the other, I think, big movie series that changed that was also The Lord of the Rings, because I was just looking it up now, and, like, The Fellowship of the Ring came out in December of 2001. I don't know if the other ones did, too. Maybe they also came out around the same time. But yeah, I think they sort of changed it from just being sort of just summer blockbusters to being like summer and winter blockbusters. Cause yeah, I don't know, Two Towers came out in December also. And let me, let me just see if I can hit the trifecta here with Return of the King. Oh my god, I'm crossing my fingers. <laughs> Let's see here. Yep, they all came out in December. Okay, alright. And early odds we're getting the new X-Men franchise, the Brian Singer X-Men's, and we're getting the Spider-Man's. Oh god, I thought horrible for not remembering the director's name. Uh, uh, Sam Raimi. Sam Raimi Spider-Man's and Peter Jackson is blowing our mind and showing us that New Zealand is a place on planet Earth and <laughs> I can remember this time, but I mean, like every year, definitely has like there are definitely blockbusters like every year, but yeah, I think this is still the time when summer was the big time because there, you know, kids are out of school. wasn't really as much of a focus on trying to get people to go to them, see the movies on Christmas Eve or whatever. And uh, it's different now, obviously. Oh, yeah. yeah. So we have to talk about the ratings for this movie because... So, Rotten Tomatoes has uh, an 80% critical positive rating, 73% audience positive rating. So, apparently the audiences don't like this movie as much as critics do. 
That's usually flipped. Am I am I wrong in that? It seems like it's typically the opposite. It is, but I don't know. I mean, maybe I don't know if the audience rate. I think the audience rating is just from anyone who's on the site and can just sort of rate the movie however they want. Which, speaking of that, IMDb, the it's a 7 out of 10. Like, 7.0 out of 10. Do you recall what the 1989 Batman review was that we did? I don't, but I can... I can look it up in a moment. Okay, sorry, go ahead. That's okay. Uh, because on the other ratings aggregator that we choose to use, which is, of course, Amazon.com, this movie has a rating of. 4.7 out of 5 stars. Which, I did write down that 1989 Batman also got 4.7 stars out of 5 on Amazon. And, uh, Batman Forever has... Wait for it. Don't you? Mm. 4.6 out of 5 stars. Okay, I'm good. I was like, that, that motherfucker better be lower. <laughs> that was about to be a problem. Okay. This, it is, but not out. that much lower, actually. Like, I thought it would be a little <laughs> bit lower, but, you know, as we've discovered, Amazon.com is probably not the greatest review aggregator. Yes. I've finally caught up to the fact that, what is this episode? Five or whatever that I've I finally understand the Amazon thing you guys talking about. <laughs> the 1989 Batman, the on Rotten Tomatoes, the critic rating is 71%, which seems surprisingly low but the audience rating is 84% so that seems like it's more in line with what you were talking about I like this one a lot more and I know I, I have a, the original one as a solid placement art which is well, uh, documented in our previous podcast, but this, 
this one is so good. If you disagree with me, I'm going to have huge problems with you. And it will be super fun for everybody. <laughs> well, I will admit it's been a long time since we've seen the 1989 Batman. I remember enjoying it, but I think I probably would agree with you that I think this one's better. Can I give you... Yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just gonna say, okay, also, uh, the 1989 Batman has 7.5 out of 10 on IMDb, so apparently People don't like Batman Returns as much as they like 1989 Batman, but critics like Batman Returns more. It was controversial for a lot of people. Yeah, I can see that, yeah. I do recall when we did Batman Forever, a Roger Ebert enamored me and uh, it escapes me now uh, about the movie but Roger Eber I think historically just does not like Batman movies he gave this movie a 2 out of 4 stars and it's not not quite as aggressive as his, as his complaints about Batman Forever, which I think were mostly complaints uh, about the sexual nature. That was also just a really, really gay movie. Um, I was going to say, uh, gonna say the Jim Carrey sexual <laughs> sexuality. I mean, I'm not complaining about any of that. Oh, neither am I. This is this is a it's a Roger Ebert specific problem. <laughs> Sounds like it. So what? What I found online, just through cursory research, was Robert Ebert had said, I give the movie a negative review, and yet, I don't think it's a bad movie. It's a more misguided, made with great creativity, but denying us what we more or less deserve from a Batman story. No matter how hard you try, superheroes and film noir don't go together. The very essence of noir is that there are no more heroes. So, Roger Ebert, I'm sorry you're dead, but you have bad opinions. Here's the thing. Already, if we go back to the 
the origins of the Batman comic book. He, it is a, it is a noir story. So get bad, Ebert. <laughs> right. The whole the whole idea behind Batman is that he's a detective. That's that's where the name DC Comics came from. Was wasn't it called Detective Comics? Yeah, that's literally the shirt and the creepy all Batman outfit that I sent you today <laughs> that I'm wearing. It says Detective Comics on it. Yeah. Like, that's the whole gimmick, is that he was a detective. It's not like he wasn't necessarily a superhero. I mean, he was he was definitely, you know, like a... He's a vigilante. He's not a... He's not necessarily supposed to be thought of as this superhero sort of character like your typical ideas of superheroes like Superman or Spider-Man or the X-Men or Thor or anybody else like that. He's just a guy who's solving crimes. Yeah, the hero element came way too much, but definitely came decades later. And arguably, the point where it became this crazy hero in the comics where he was going toe-to-toe with Batman and because of his insane stealth skills, Martian Manhunter couldn't sense him. And he was doing all this crazy stuff in the comic books where it's it's like, you know, the whole thing with Batman as part of the Justice League on the comic level is that he is the peak of of human possibility. I believe in the DC Marvel crossover from the 90s. I remember Uh, that. I actually got those comics. You got the Amalgam comics? Yes. I have no idea where they are, but I did buy them as a set. Well, it was pretty exciting. Yeah, especially and the pairing where, because, you know, the whole initial part of the comic was they had all these pairing of superheroes fight each other before they realized that there was actually a big bad man to fight classic comic trope, right? (laughs) Avengers does it best. (laughs) <laughs> is 
Batman gets teamed up. Well, not teamed up, but gets paired against Captain America. These two quote-unquote peaks of humanity. One guy has a super serum. The other guy's rich. You know, the joke is <laughs> Bruce Wayne's superpower is money, right? Right. But, you know, we're, that's around the era where it's like Batman is a superhero. But, Ultimately, the point is, Roger Ebert, you're the worst, and uh, we don't miss you. We don't miss you at all. I don't mean that. I don't mean that. I'm just, you know, he hit a source. He hit a, he hit a source spot. Right. No, I, I kind of understand that. I mean, I... I do think Roger Ebert can be enjoyable at times. Sometimes he can have rather biting humor with certain particularly bad or particularly good movies that, you know, like, I, I enjoy some of his reviews, but he's not necessarily the be-all and end-all. Like, he's... He's definitely one of the more recognizable names in movie reviewing, but he's still one person, and it's one person's opinion of a movie. And just because he doesn't like it doesn't mean that we can't like it also, because, you know... People are gonna be different. Preach, sister. I yeah, definitely. <laughs> so this so this movie, the movie's budget was like twice that of the 1989 Batman movie. I I had to look this up because I was curious about like box office draw and that sort of stuff. So, 1989 Batman had a budget of about 35 million and brought in over 400 million. Uh, Batman Returns had a budget of about 80 million and brought in about 283 million which is probably just, you know, sequel syndrome. You know, the sequels are probably never going to make as much money as the originals, unless it's The Lord of the Rings, or probably Harry Potter, or Avengers. Okay, I'm proving my yeah, point wrong completely. Never mind. Was. And then, but then just the fact that it's probably also, again, like we had mentioned before, the 
parental advisory groups that decided to boycott this film because it ended up being far more violent than they expected a kid's movie to be because it's a superhero movie, it's supposed to be... They, they were expecting it to be all cartoony and goofy, which there are definitely cartoony and goofy parts in here, but there's also lots of people getting murdered. Yeah, but I mean, had they seen the first one? I mean, that was particularly dark. I think it was the, the sexualization, I think, was the biggest issue for American audiences in this one. Yeah, I can, I can definitely see people taking issue with a woman in a skin-tight latex uh, jumpsuit for 70% of the movie? Oh yeah, we'll talk about that jumpsuit a little bit. Yeah, oh definitely. I got um, some comments. Okay. <laughs> Appropriate, non-creepy comments. Just more... Production side comments, Sam. Get your mind out of the gutter. Okay. I, I, I'll try Once. to. I'll try to. So this movie is... Sorry, we gotta run on the cast list because... Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. There, there, are, there are a couple of other lists of people that I want to read out to you. Whether or not you've read these lists, but... So anyway, we're starring... Really, I mean, yes, Michael Keaton is the... is supposed to be the big star. He's, he is Bruce Wayne, he's Batman. He's not the main character of this movie. No. Uh, but he's also starred in such classic films as Multiplicity, which we have discussed before as a possibility oh, yeah. of watching later <laughs> some other time. Uh, Mr. Mom, he was also the Birdman, as opposed to being Batman. Which is a movie that I have not seen, but I've mean to I've been meant meaning to for a while. That was after his long stint of I think trying to separate himself from the Batman image were kind of a brilliant piece of casting for a pretty good movie actually. Of mm-hmm. uh, using him to Dress the hero genre in an era where we were overly saturated, continue to be overly saturated with heroes. Is that was one of the first sort of like kind of serious commentaries on heroes in the film. 
deep in this period of time, I think. Go ahead, sorry. Oh, that that was it. The other the only other movie I had listed on here was Beetlejuice. Which I really would like to see that one again. Another Tim Burton flick. He will be also reprising his role as Batman in the upcoming, uh, I believe, 2022 Flash film. Hmm. Since uh, the DC Warner Brothers finally figured out how to compete with Marvel's interconnected universe, they took a page out of their CW TV show series, which has been doing the multiverse concept, where multiple worlds exist in parallel universes, and uh, they had this mega crossover in the last several years where you've got not only all their current lineups of shows from Supergirl to Arrow to Flash to however many they have of these things now, where they actually made some crossovers to the Smallville TV show and the Lois and Clark TV show as the kind of testing ground to go, okay, well now we're going to do this in our cinematic universe because we can't do what Marvel's made their bread and butter, but we can do this everything we've ever made is in the same multiverse situation. So Michael Keaton's coming back uh, as one of the different parallel universes of Batman and the Flash So, okay, that begs the question. Since you mentioned that they're they're crossing over with Lois and Clark, does that mean that Dean Cain's gonna come back as Superman? Um, I really hope not. It's I'm very sorry. possible he already did, but I don't I... remember. I know for a fact that Smallville Superman, whatever that guy's name was, Tom something, Tom Welling, Tom Welling too. Why do do I know that? Well, you know, I can, I've never, I've never even seen Smallville, but I know the name of the actor who played Superman. Probably in your circle around, probably kind of like 
one high school around that time. Somewhere around there, I think. Yeah. Like, I knew this is not a tangent we're going to follow, but I knew way too much about Dawson's Creek having never seen Dawson's <laughs> Creek. So, this shit just gets in your head if, if you're just at that age range. Was that James Vanderbeek? Was he in that? Sam, we're not going down Dawson's Okay, okay, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. This is not, except that Pacey was dreamy, and I don't <laughs> care what anybody says. <laughs> um, but no, yeah, so I don't know, but... <laughs> Michael Keaton will be retaking the Batman mantle in 2022. Neat. I'm down with it. So, alongside uh, all the other Batman, etc. Hmm. That actually sounds kind of cool. But yes, so uh, Michael Keaton, killer. Also, the actual star of the show, Danny DeVito, who <laughs> probably most people who are listening to this podcast know exclusively as playing Frank Reynolds on It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. But guess what, kids? He was in a shitload of other stuff over the last 50 years. So many things. Like, he was, he was in One Floor of a Cuckoo's Nest. He was in Terms of Endearment. He was in Romancing the Stone. He was in two comedies with Arnold Schwarzenegger. He was in Twins and Junior. He was in Get Shorty. He was in Space Jam. He was in Mars Attacks, which is a movie I really would like to see again. He was in L.A. Confidential, he was in Man on the Moon, and just, like, dozens of other movies and TV shows. He was he was one of the main characters from the movie, to the TV show Taxi, back in the 70s. Just, he's like, he's such a prolific actor, and most people know him as one demented old man. <laughs> and it's it's kind of sad that people don't realize how much stuff Danny DeVito was in and how good of an actor he is. Just, like, if all you've ever seen him do play is Frank Reynolds, Watch at least this movie, 
And you can see how different of a character. Well, he's not that much of a different from Frank Grill. Yeah, uh, yeah, well, let's be clear. This is actually one of the roles that is surprisingly close to Frank Reynolds. Yeah, but still, it's it's different. It's a very different role. And here's this other, here's one of two lists of names that I want to read out to you. And this is a list of other people who were considered for the role of the penguin. And I will tell you out of this entire list, there's one name that I personally think could potentially have played this role other than Danny DeVito. Okay. Are you ready? ready? Okay. I am 100% ready. So, the first person who actually was offered this role was Dustin Hoffman. Oh. He turned it down. So, the other people who were considered for this role were, and this is coming from Wikipedia, so I'm hoping that this is correct. Okay. Marlon Brando, John Candy, Bob Hoskins, Ralph... Ralph Waite. I don't know who that is. I'm sorry. I don't know who that is. Dean Martin. Dudley Moore. Alan Rickman. John Goodman. Phil Collins. The singer of Genesis fame. Charles Grodin of Beethoven fame, Christopher Goddamn Lee, Joe motherfucking Pesci, Ray Liotta, Gabriel Byrne, Alex Rocco, and Christopher Lloyd. Joe Pesci has a I don't know, je ne sais quoi as uh, Danny DeVito. I can't quite place it. It's like the same thing sometimes people compare Dustin Hoffman to Robert De Niro. Obviously, they're different, but there's something in their DNA that kind of, like, echoes. Dustin Hoffman would have been interesting. Mm-hmm. The, the only name to me that sticks out as one who could possibly play the Penguin as well as Danny DeVito would be Bob Hoskins. 
He's the sure only one I could see. And that is, of course, if we're talking about the realized version of the penguin that we saw on screen. Obviously, yes. there's a lot of different versions of penguin. You know, this is Tim Burton at a very specific angle that he brought with these actors to these characters. I think of Penguin as more of a gangster type. Mm-hmm. And they definitely went monster type for this. And yeah. as far as monster type, I agree Hoskins would have been probably pretty phenomenal in his own way. Yeah, uh, Burgess Meredith, this, this penguin ain't. That is for sure. Uh, which, funny enough, Burgess Meredith was offered the part of the penguin's father, but he turned it down. Instead, uh, the penguin's father was played by Paul Rubens, Pee Wee Herman. I didn't even realize he had a that. Busy, uh, Pee Wee Herman has a, had a busy year in 92, because 92 was also Bram Stoker's Dracula, which he was also in. Was he? Yeah. I did not even realize that. <laughs> Most people think of Keanu Reeves, but they forget that Keanu Reeves was... Keanu Reeves is most of the reason that I remember that movie. Like, I remember Gary Oldman, I remember Keanu Reeves, and I don't remember any. Oh no, uh, what was his name? Hannibal Lecter. Not. Oh my god, but I can't remember his name. Anthony Hopkins. Anthony Hopkins. All I could think of was Alan Rickman. <laughs> Gary Oldman, of course. Just as far as tying it to Batman was uh, Commissioner Gordon for the Christopher Nolan Batmans. Oh yeah! Yeah! It all comes together. None of these things are tangents. We plan everything. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, Gary Oldman has been in every movie ever. Along with yeah, Christopher true. Walken, who's been in literally every movie in the history of time. So, with uh, that being said, mm -hmm. continue with your cast list, Sam Christopher Walken. Holy yeah. shit, what a, what a grab. Yeah. And then Michelle Pfeiffer. Plays Can I make one slight comment real quick? Christopher Walken, one of yeah. the 
things that I'd found as far as his preparation for this movie was that uh, apparently some of the direction that he was given was not necessarily to play it like him because you know Christopher Walken is Christopher Walken at the end of the day but uh, some of the Max Shrek character direction that he was given was based on a photograph of Vincent Price. Okay. So, I don't I know that. that. Yeah, yeah. So, I don't know yet. Like I said, Christopher Walken is Christopher Walken, but, you know, after hearing that and paying attention a little bit more to the movie, Okay, I, I guess I can kind of see at least aesthetically where the Vincent Price thing comes from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, like you said, Christopher Walken is basically just playing Christopher Walken at this point in his career. Because he'd been acting for like 20 years at this point, or 25 or 30 years or something, so... He, 75, he, 90, give or yeah. So he had, like, he'd crafted his own sort of persona, and he is just basically going to play himself wearing different hats or different wigs, as the case may be. Sure, sure. And, like, I'm not going to complain about that, because Christopher Walken's great. But, you know, it's, it's a little bit different for me when it's someone like Danny DeVito, who seems to sort of he he doesn't we don't think oh that's Danny DeVito we think holy shit that's an amazing character that he's playing with Christopher Walken it's like yeah it's Christopher Walken in a movie that sort of thing I don't know I'm not complaining I hear you one of the key relationships in this movie is Christopher Walken based, so uh, we'll get into <laughs> that. Yeah. And also starring Michelle Pfeiffer, who was not the original choice to play Catwoman. Apparently, Annette Benning was originally cast as Catwoman, but she had to she had to leave the project because she got pregnant. And thank God for that. <laughs> because, so I know, like Michelle Pfeiffer was a 
Catwoman fan from young. So this was actually a big role for her. You know, I can't speak for Annette Bening, but apparently she felt that procreation was more important than playing Selena Kyle. So, already I am on Michelle Pfeiffer's side. Mm-hmm. And here's another list of people who were considered for this role. And... There's a bit of hypocrisy in this list, which I'll read out to you again. So, people who were considered for the role of Catwoman include Susan Sarandon, Meryl Streep, which I would really like to see Meryl Streep play Catwoman also. But... Uh, apparently, she was considered too old to play Catwoman by Tim Burton, but one of the other people who was in this list, I'll get to her later, so other people, Brooke Shields, who apparently Tim Burton did not think that she was bankable enough to play Catwoman, which, okay, whatever, for a little shade. Questionable. Yeah, um, Demi Moore, which, okay, Nicole Kidman, who, you know, she ended up in Batman Forever, so... She's at least got something out of that. Chase Meridian. Yeah. Uh, Jodie Foster. Gina Davis. Yeah, that one, uh, Gina Davis, maybe. Uh, Sigourney Weaver. I'd like to see Sigourney Weaver play Catwoman. That would be very interesting, I think. Uh, Lena Olin, Madonna, yeah, and here's, here's my, here's my beef with Tim Burton here, Raquel Welsh, which is, who is considered for this movie, I'm not saying that I wouldn't have liked to see Raquel Welsh play Catwoman, I'm just saying the fact that he considers Meryl Streep to be too old to be to play Catwoman, but he was considering Raquel Welsh, who is older than Meryl Streep, and was also considered to play the part. It's like, it's a little bit hypocritical. That's all I'm saying. One of the interesting through lines as we see through the Selena Kyle character in this movie is the early 1990s struggling with strong feminine identity 
And in some cases they do well, in other cases they vomit. Just, <laughs> uh, of course, the behind-the-scenes side is still entrenched with terrible sexism yeah. and ageism. Yeah. Uh, other people who were considered for the role include Cher. I I don't was she even acting in the nineties? I don't I don't know. I I don't know that much about Cher honestly. She was she there was like a mermaid in some movie, right? Mm, I I don't know. Literally in a movie called <laughs> Okay. Let's see. Also, uh, Ellen Barkin, Jennifer Jason Lee, Lorraine Bracco, Bridget Fonda, and Jennifer Beals. I just wanted to run through the last few names because there were like 40 of them. So, yeah, apparently a lot of people were considered for the role. And, uh, oh, also, Sean Young, who was going to initially play, I think, Vicky Vale in 1989 Batman, but she had to drop out of the she had to drop out of the movie because she broke her arm in a horse riding accident, and. She really wanted to play Catwoman, but she was never considered for the role. So, to show her interest in wanting to play the role, she actually made her own homemade Catwoman costume and, like, wore it onto TV shows and talk shows to sort of let Tim Burton know. It's like, hey, I really want to be this. I really want to play Catwoman. And apparently that didn't work out very well because obviously she cast. you look up YouTube videos. Yes. There is oh a video of her on the Joan Rivers show wearing this Catwoman costume. So obviously whenever you guys post this you need to include a link to that. Oh yeah. Definitely. Okay. If, that's if right, it that's is, excellent. Yeah. If it is still online, then definitely we will <laughs> include that on there. Well, once uh, her people hear about this, I'm positive just because of the rave reviews of Bandy Manatees. It's going to be important for them to make sure that it's accessible to the audience. Mm-hmm. 
I hope so. Yeah, let's see, there was, there was obviously, obviously we had Michael, Michael Goff or Gal, I'm never sure how to pronounce his name. I, I think it's Goff. Play Alfred Bennyworth. Of course. Alfred, oh my god. Alfred. There was, the there wasn't enough Alfred in this movie. That I'm tied together. Alfred, even though there wasn't enough Alfred, uh, the amount of notes they have, they, and they started writing down so many, had to create a subcategory of notes entitled Alfred Throws Shade. <laughs> because, because Michael Go is, I guess, I is uh, how I how I will say it. Michael Go, okay, is amazing. Keaton has gone on record saying that he was an amazing man. Their chemistry is fantastic. And I'm sure everybody loved him. Clearly Tim Burton liked him. Wanted to keep him around. So good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We also get... Uh, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to mention that I think he... He and Pat Hangel were the only through lines through the these four through Batman, Batman Returns, Batman Forever, and Batman and Robin. Pat Hinkle, the most useless commissioner <laughs> board and it, it not not Pat Hinkle's fault, but his the, the Commissioner Gordon that he was given to play is just absolutely useless. I mean, this you know, this one this one in particular, he was in like four scenes, and for a total of maybe five minutes. And all the scenes are like. We just made it here. Where the fuck is Batman? <laughs> yeah. But me, meanwhile, Gary Oldman as Commissioner Gordon is like diffusing bombs and like he's, he's all over the place. He's he's being a commissioner. Pat Engel. Oh, Pat Hingle, I love you so much. Let's. I have two. No, I have four names I would like to throw out, depending on how you are on your list. Okay, go for it. It has to be, it has to be said. Stan Winston 
So Stan Winston was primarily, I think he might have been the main person in charge of, if not just Penguin's makeup, uh, a variety of special effects, but, you know, he's, he's a special effect, special makeup effects artist, essentially. He's known for Terminator, he's known for Jurassic Park, he's known for Predator, Edward Scissorhands, I think he even... I think he even did Iron Man. Stan Winston is a name. And he was like the special effects guy on this movie. Uh, you can't, I don't think you can talk about Batman Return without at least mentioning his name. Um, because he did die in the early 2000s and he was just pivotal in a bunch of movies that I think were just major names in our childhood. Mm-hmm. Danny Elfman came back for this score and was a... also played a role in the standalone song in this. So the last movie we of course got the Prince single, the <laughs> Batman Prince song. The kind of standout song in this movie, Face to Face, which I have some things to say about later on. <laughs> Poor Danny Elfman, he did not want to be involved with anything pop related. I think Prince's involvement in the last movie nearly gave him a heart attack. <laughs> and yet he helped compose this this sort of Catwoman love theme. And Sam, who is the number one writer that is beloved from the first Batman movie? I mean, the only person I could think of would have to be that of the great Sam Ham. Sam Ham? Oh my god. Oh, Sam Ham. <laughs> he is credited as a story writer, which uh, his story was apparently almost immediately thrown out by Tim Burton. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> How nice. <laughs> Thanks, Tim Burton. <laughs> So, pretty much 
everything we see is uh, all credited to Daniel Waters. They just had to keep Sam Hamill as the story writer. I'm sure there's reasoning behind that, but uh, you know what? I, uh, Daniel Waters, I think I'm gonna give all the credit to Sam Ham. Because, uh, it's just where we're at over here on Matinee Manatees. I'm down. <laughs> Sounds good to me. But uh, actually, uh, Daniel Waters did have some significant things to uh, add to the film. And uh, especially when it comes to some of Batman's homicidal tendencies, I will... Uh, talk about Daniel Waters again. Okay. Uh, those are the names I have to add. Okay. There were a few other actors who were at least noted with, like, names and things. So I'll run through them real quick. So, Michael Murphy who plays the mayor, who is about as ineffectual as, uh, as Pat Hangel, as Commissioner Gordon. We have... A new mayor as well, a different mayor than the last movie. Yeah. And we have Vincent Schiavelli who plays a character that, I'll be quite frank, I, I watched this movie twice, and the, f the first time I was taking notes, so I wasn't paying super close attention, I didn't realize this character existed until I watched the movie a second time. <laughs> so... He's the organ grinder with the monkey. Oh, he's yeah. very iconic face, though. Yeah, but I didn't even rec. I didn't even. Not that I didn't even recognize him. I didn't even notice him because I was too busy like taking notes while I was watching the movie. So, just goes to show you, don't just take notes when you're watching movies, kids. Just just enjoy it. Don't bother yeah. sitting and taking notes, that sort of thing. Which I know everybody does if they don't have a podcast. Everyone's just writing notes for their movies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The other name that I... There are a couple other names that I want to mention here. Besides, obviously, Pee Wee Herman. So, Andrew Briniarski. I hope that I'm pronouncing his name correctly. 
Yeah, Chip Shrek. Yes. Who does a pretty spot-on Christopher Walken impression, if we're being honest. Uh, he also played Leatherface in the 2000, mid-2000s reboot of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. 2003, oh yeah, he was, uh, he became a, look him up, ladies and gentlemen, he is mostly neck. <laughs> a giant wall of a man uh, is all over the horror movie scene. Hmm. Well, there you go. And the other name that I wanted to write down here. Okay, sorry, there are two other names. But we'll get to one of the other names later on. But there's a character who's he's called the Tattooed Strongman. He's the only person who's able to stand up to a Batman punch and not immediately die. Which is kind of cool. He is played by a guy named Rick... Zumwalt, who does, that name doesn't ring a bell, I'm sure, except he is a champion arm wrestler, and he was a featured character in the 1980, I think, 7, Sylvester Stallone arm wrestling film. Over the top. Oh my god. Yeah. Which is a movie I really would like to watch again. Because I watched it once probably 20 years ago. And I really want to see it again. I am retroactively starstruck by that character now. Well, I had to look him up because he just—he seemed like a, just a different sort of presence from all of the other uh, goons, the, uh, the penguins, goons, and I had to look him up. It's like, okay. Where do I... I didn't recognize him from over the top, but that was sort of like the big... That was his big role was in that movie. Which, by the way, I have to make a pro wrestling reference in every time I'm on this this podcast. And over the top also features a cameo by none other than uh, hardcore legend Terry Funk. So there's your wrestling reference for the day. That's all I could think of. You're welcome, America. 
and other countries. <laughs> so, those are all the names that I wanted to mention. There are a couple other names in here for people who played like a lot of sort of smaller roles like Christy Conway who plays the Ice Princess and Anna Katarina who plays the Poodle Lady which will make sense later. Oh yeah, but, sure. Yeah. But yeah. Darla who plays the Poodle uh, <laughs> later in the movie. <laughs> Which I think is, you know, a pretty important one, not to be uh, understated. Uh, Seth, who plays one of the Emperor Penguins, actually. Mm -hmm. These are some actors near and dear to my heart. Oh yeah, yeah. Those those penguins were treated like rock stars. I should have said they were treated like emperors, because that would have made a lot more sense. It would have been a well, very once we job. get to uh, some of the big uh, penguin stuff, I have some penguin trivia for you, Sam. So prepare yourself. I'm I'm looking forward to that. Okay, I th I think that's everything I had to talk about the cast <laughs> list. That only took 40 minutes. <laughs> hey, you know, 40 minutes, give or take, how long do most intros take? I, I don't know. That doesn't matter. Manatees move. At our own time. Exactly. Yeah. We call it mana time. Mana time. And, uh, you know, once we start talking about our aquatic brethren, like penguins, I mean, that's going to tack on a good hour. So, mm -hmm. you know. Plenty to fall asleep to this evening. Oh yeah. This this podcast, this episode might actually still be playing when you wake up in the morning. Ooh, that'll be nice. Yeah. Yeah. Breakfast. <laughs> As we're talking about death, murder, it's like, have some toast, here's how a bunch of penguin for mind. Here's how everyone dies in this movie. So, um, 
Yeah, I forget. It's so rough every time we kill Ben. I always forget about the structure <laughs> of what we're doing. So, I figure we, we might as well just talk about the actual... what happens in the movie, right? Oh, yeah. That's, that's usually what we do. So. Okay, that's cool. I'm into that. So we we start out in Gotham. It's Christmas time, or somewhere around there. It's winter time sometime, and we see Pee Wee Herman, who's staring out a window. And then we hear a baby crying. Apparently, you know, he's his wife is having a baby. So he goes in to the room to to see the see the child as the doctor is apparently leaving or fleeing or something. Yes. Fleeing is the right word you got. It. Yeah, he he is he cast expeditious retreat on himself and he is running away. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, as he as the doctor like looks back, then you hear this this primal scream from Paul Rubens as apparently something's wrong with the baby. And uh, then a little bit later, we see sort of, I don't know if this is in the same year or if this maybe is like the next year or something, cause it's, the baby can't be that old, right? You'd have to think. There, there's definitely a time jump because at this point, you know, the Cobblepot parents are looking out from their whatever 40th floor manor <laughs> and little Oswald is in a cage on the floor. <laughs> it's, a, it's a sizable cage. It, it, it feels, you know, roughly like perhaps he could be about three, give or take. We're given some visual setup. There's like, a, I think there's a rubber ducky which becomes a major vehicle for him later hanging and one of my one of the things I was wondering is you know clearly poor little baby Oswald was born with some physical deformities yeah and in this scene he pulls a cat into his 
baby cage, which you could probably buy at Walmart, and <laughs> just and then just like rips this cat to shreds and eats it, and it it brings to mind to me at least I I started wondering about some kind of like nature versus nurture situations so like was he just born as this like feral creature or it's very apparent that his parents are extremely cold people so I mean what hand did they have in uh sort of physical deformities but then again we don't necessarily know if because he had he was born with these physical deformities that they decided to treat him like a monster or if he was if he acted like a monster from the time he was born it's not clear. So it seems to me like the parents just don't want to deal with him because he was born not looking like a normal person. So they just lock him in a cage and let and treat him as a feral creature. That's just yeah, my interpretation. Dump him off the bridge into the river. Yeah, because <laughs> apparently, apparently, him killing the cat was the last straw. So they take him out in his in a little bassinet, and they walk they walk up to this bridge over a river and they just huck him in the river and they think <laughs> and they're like job well done you know dust their hands off and walk away never to be seen again there's a little bit of acting chops going on. I feel like we see a hint of remorse in the parents' face. One of the things I love about this opening is because it's, it's leading up to the opening credit scene mm-hmm. is that we have a, a camera pan up to a manor which we're already echoing 
something of, of, of Bruce Wayne and Bruce Wayne Manor, who we, we don't see for a while in this movie, by the way. Mm-hmm. We have this pan up into a, into a huge, rich manor, and then we have a pan down that follows this baby bassinet down into the sewers. So we have this, this cave, essentially. So we're having, you know, Tim Burton is no slouch. He might, uh, he might just be kind of like, you know, going through the motions these days, but back then, he, he was, he had some cinematic chops, so he was really doing some visual parallels to the, you know, riches to cave situation, because Penguin and Catwoman are both showing these different sides of Bruce Wayne in a different light. Mm-hmm. But also, considering, I think, much later on in the film, someone had talked about how the fact that he, he, like, the penguin was born into, like, he was born into high society, and it, if he, had he not been born with physical deformities or had his parents treated him as a regular child instead of as a, as a, as a feral freak that maybe he would have been like bunkmates with Bruce Wayne in, in prep school or something. Oh, yeah, yes, like, that was Max Shrek. Yes, okay, it was him who said that. And so we have this intro where we see the bassinet sort of floating through the sewers as we see the names of people coming up. And it's like, it's it's an interesting intro. I will give it that for sure. Yeah, it's a little bit more evocative than the last movie, which I think just kind of like roamed around the bat symbol. Mm-hmm. I think the third one did that also. It just sort of, sort of had the name sort of float in and out of the screen, whereas this one is sort of it's trying to it's trying to let you know exactly what the penguin is is going to be be like in the future i guess it's sort of just 
just showing. This is where he's gonna live for the next, apparently, 33 years. Which, as, as the credits end, then the basket sort of floats up to these penguins. Which, apparently they're living underneath the zoo instead of <laughs> living in the zoo yeah, it was like the the side of the zoo the the sewer situation isn't super elaborated on we know that his main home was underneath the zoo that was also the site of a controversial circus thing that had happened. Mm-hmm. I think he just kind of has dominion over the supers. It seems a little. It seems like it, yeah. So then we're cut it to 33 years later. And there are apparently... There's apparently been sightings of some strange penguin-human hybrid uh, all around the city as there's just been chaos that's been happening caused by this this gang. And Alfred has no time for these kind of rubbish <laughs> headlines. Yep. He is having a pleasant shopping experience. He's, he's walking around having a good time. He's got a big old bag of presents, probably all for Bruce Wayne. I was gonna say, who is he buying those for? He's buying them all. We got into the fact that Michael Keaton's Bruce Wayne is a kind of a crazy perfect billionaire in the first movie. So, for sure, he is buying all of these presents for Bruce Wayne, and Alfred's loving every second of it, but he, he has no time for the, that little newsies, rubbish headlines. Mm-hmm. So, he, he basically just brushes off this newsie. Actually, that's also what I wrote down. That's what that kid was. Like, <laughs> random newsy trying to sell papers. Uh, and then, I guess, I didn't, again, a lot of things I noticed the second time watching this film that he that Alfred sort of walks over a sewer grate and I'm not sure if it seems like he got caught or something or if he noticed something 
but he stops and turns around and looks at the grate as if something strange had happened. So it's like, he already knows what's up. He could have caught notice. I mean, we do get a POV shot from the, from the penguin where his little hands are like watching the tree lighting city. Tree lighting ceremony with the mayor, whatever's going on. You know, Alfred is, I think, probably more aware than most people. Oh, yeah. So, uh, he knows what's up. So, this is the first, this is my first on my Alfred throwing shade list. Alfred throws shade to sewers. Take that, sewers. Oh no, I'm sorry, it's second. First throws shade to the newsie, then throws shade to the sewers. Alfred throws a lot of shade. Yeah. And so there's, they're apparently lighting the Christmas tree, which requires a beauty queen to strip nearly naked in the freezing cold weather in order to press down a plunger that looks like she's going to blow up some dynamite, but instead turns on the lights of a Christmas tree. Yep. And then we see a boardroom with, like, way, way, way up in, like, I don't know, what do you think? 70, 80, 90 floors up, something like that? It's super high. It's ridiculous Gotham City movie height. We're not quite to the level of the Schumacher Gotham City yet, (laughs) where there's 3,000 story buildings but we definitely are at an extremely high level Mm -hmm. and Max Shrek who I'm just gonna talk I'm just gonna refer to him as Christopher Walken because it's easier for me that way Uh, Christopher Walken in a very silly wig is discussing plans to build a power plant and he's talking to the mayor and some of his other probably higher up business partners and that sort of thing and the mayor's saying why do we need a power plant we have a power surplus Christopher Walken says something about it's just you're just getting one percent per annum. It's not a pow- what did he say? I don't remember. It's not a 
it's not a surplus, it's a, it's like a, what was the word he used, I can't remember, but he, he basically blows it off like it's nothing. Yeah, he's, he's looking, he's blatantly being like, hey, I want you to incentivize me to do something I want to do. And the mayor is like, nah, we don't need this. I don't like the fact that you're trying to overstep your bounds. There's a meeting later on where Bruce Wayne has a much more dynamic version of this conversation, but that's the gist of it. Yeah. And of course, uh, yeah, go ahead. Oh, yeah, and then poor Selena Kyle. I don't know how she's the executive assistant to this man. She's so meek. And of course that has more to do with highlighting the growth of this character. But she's so meek in this scene. She's just like trembling barely pouring coffee, kind of saying half words. What I love is this boardroom scene after she like very reluctantly circles the room giving coffee to all these people is she interrupts because she has a suggestion about this whole situation. And then there's this very dismissive sexist comment about how you know, she doesn't know her manners and she pours a mean cup of coffee. And everyone laughs because they're all terrible men. But I want to know what's, what her suggestion was. We never get to hear what her suggestion was for this dynamic of Shrek wanting to build more nuclear power plants and the mayor wanting him to go through the proper channels. What did Selena Kyle have to say? I, it's good, it plagues me to this day. Yeah, I mean, she, this, that, that moment when she says, I have a suggestion, and then just everything stops. All the rich white men turn to her and stare at her like, why is there a woman in the boardroom who is talking? It's like they, they take it like it's an affront that there's a woman who has a suggestion. And of course she immediately backs down. It's like, I, it's more, more, I mean, more of a question. And then 
that's when I think Christopher Walken says something about, you know, at least she makes a neat cup of coffee and then all the rich white men laugh in the in the room and then Chip walks in and says hey dad you gotta go make your speech Hugh what is probably the best relationship in this entire movie Chip (laughs) walks in and he is framed in camera next to a portrait in the boardroom of Max Shrek, Christopher Walken, and Chip Shrek together. So already giving you this visual cue that Max loves his son. We will come to find out later that Max will do anything for power, murder anybody. Terrible man. But he loves Chip. And Chip loves Max. The amount of times that they stand up for each other throughout this movie, it's you know, it's one of it's one of the beautiful things in Batman Returns is the Shrek father son relationship. It warms the cockles of my cold dead heart to see them to see them their their relationship. It's truly it's truly beautiful. Except for the fact that they're terrible, terrible yeah, no, they're, they're <laughs> they've actively murdered probably hundreds of people and are dooming the lives of thousands more. But do you have any read, Sam? So it's already been made apparent that. You know, because they're, they're, they're at this boardroom at the very top of the skyscraper. And Shrek apparently owns power plants, but as we find out throughout the film, he also owns department stores. Shrek's got his hands in all kinds of stuff. The logo for Max Shrek's empire is a big cat face. Hmm. Why? That I'm not sure. Catwoman? Is it just because Catwoman? I, it could be. I I don't know. I, I mean, the. I think the character of Max Shrek I, I actually had to look into this because I was curious where the character came from. I guess he was an original creation for this film because 
they were originally going to have Harvey Dent, who was going to be played by Billy D. Williams. But I guess he had to back out of the movie for whatever reason. So they had to, like, create this new character on the fly because they could they didn't have Harvey Dent for some reason. So I honestly don't know if there's any sort of reasoning for having the cat be the logo because I don't think there was any sort of established character motifs or traits before this movie so I I honestly don't know why he would I guess it's just probably for the for the the, the parallels to Selena Kyle becoming Catwoman that's the only reason I could think of it so mm-hmm. I don't know I accept oh cool I, I wasn't expecting that, but thank you. <laughs> uh, yeah, I have some Harvey Dent trivia for you at the very end of the movie, so I'm glad you brought that up. Oh, neat. So, they leave. All the, all the rich white men leave to give a speech. And then... Uh, Selena Kyle's like berating herself saying oh it's just a question what's you know she was just mad about the fact that uh, she didn't actually speak up for herself and she goes around the table trying to figure out what's what tasks she still has to complete and then she remembers that I guess she didn't give Christopher Walken his speech that he was gonna is gonna read out at this tree lighting ceremony and you know she she freaks out and goes to grab it and then runs off to try and catch up with them to to give him the speech and that sort of thing. Whereas the the men are already down there. They're already giving the speech and the mayor as they're walking up, of course, the mayor's like berating uh, Christopher Walken, saying like, you can't blackmail me into doing what you want and that sort of thing. Then he immediately walks up to the podium and says, ladies and gentlemen, the Santa Claus of Gotham, Max Shrek. It's like, wow, that's the duality of politics right there in a nutshell. <laughs> Which we'll talk more about politics later on. But 
this setup because it, you know, it does feel like a sequel to the 1989 Batman in the sense that the set a precedent for the city of Gotham City, so now just, you know, clowns going around the city causing mayhem. Hey, pretty common. You know, I never actually thought about that, but considering that the first, the first three films in this series all had sort of, well, I wouldn't necessarily call the Penguin a goofy character, but the Joker had his sort of clown army and then the penguin had a clown army, and then the Riddler is just a clown in general. It's like, it's kind of interesting, and admittedly I haven't seen the fourth film in this series in, I think, ever, or possibly not in a very long time, but I don't know if either... Mr. Free, well, Mr. Freeze is a joke, but, uh... Across the board. Yeah. Yeah, there's some bones that get carried over into the third movie from discarded script elements. The fourth movie, I don't think benefits quite as much from any through line, but probably not. But I'm honest, I would like to watch that one again at some point, so we'll see. But yeah, so the Red Triangle game explodes on the scene and then wonderful <laughs> Wonderful Pat Engel Commissioner Gordon. As mentioned earlier, the first cop car on the scene, God bless him, first cop car on the scene, shows up and is like, We gotta get Batman. Where's Batman? <laughs> We're cops. We can't be expected <laughs> to do our jobs. <laughs> so, 13 minutes into the movie, we finally get Batman. We get the bat signal, which goes out and then attaches to Batman's weird reflector system that like channels the bat signal light into a really cool cinematic part of his house and you can stand dramatically in front of it. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. Which prompts, of course, Batman to show up on the scene. Sam, do you want me to break down for you the Batmobile, 
Batman and Batboat gadgets as the movie goes forward, or do you want me to tell them to you now and see, you know, if you can kind of check them as we go? I think you should tell me as the movie goes on because quite frankly I'm not good at noticing these kinds of things so like what so what what comes up with the Batmobile in this scene okay so Batman's on the job commission needs him commissioner can't be commissioning you know, that's not his job. That's his title. Right. So. <laughs> Sounds like my job. <laughs> like, I like, I work there, but I don't really care. So I think, you know. Batman first shows up in the Batmobile. There's no... Out the gate, we notice there's no real visual overhauls. You know, we go from Batman Forever to Batman and Robin. We have entirely different Batmobiles than that. Batmobiles change but I think Batman Returns, we don't have any huge overhauls to the suit. There might be small things, and there's no real huge overhauls to the Batmobile visually. But Batman shows up on the scene. We get the first Batmobile gadget. I call it the flip-out trippers on the side. <laughs> what the hell else are these things for? Just these little... <laughs> what is it? Like two feet. The arms come out on either side to trip people. Boom. <laughs> Great gadget, Batman. That's almost as good as your front scissors. In <laughs> uh, this seconds later, these little like pits open on the side and shoot out what I think are just like they're like beanbag launchers. We have Batman's beanbag launchers, which are great for non-lethally knocking people out. Because I guess Batman cares about non-lethally knocking people out. We've established already Tim Burton's Batman will just blow up a warehouse full of goons. So we know he's a murderer. In fact, within seconds, we see him being a murderer because he, the Batmobile 
pulls up upon this, this devil character who's doing all these fire-blowing techniques on people. Mm-hmm. And the third Batmobile gadget comes out, which is this little thing that shoots out from the bottom so that the Batmobile can pivot and, and turn in a different direction and then he just boom I don't know if I would call this a gadget but he guns the engines and turns on his Batmobile flame to just burn this man alive first Batman murder of Batman Returns seconds into his introduction. I was gonna say it's like it's it's like maybe a minute into the introduction of Batman. He's already lit a man on fire. Right there. And hey, you know what? This guy's already been burning people. So I don't think anybody's crying for him. But what? Why even have non lethal beanbags, Batman? You're burning people. Just make, <laughs> just make those grenades. Like. <laughs> <laughs> So, so those are the Batmobile gadgets that we see <laughs> so far. Mm-hmm. The next scene, please, please set up the Cures for because it's a Selena Kyle meetup coming, but we do have a bad gadget coming up in the Selena Kyle scene. Mm-hmm. So, Selena Kyle is walking down the street because she's she wanted to deliver the speech to, to Christopher Walken, but you know, chaos is erupting and there are goons and and everything everywhere. They're like destroying buildings, lighting buildings on fire and the Batmobile stops relatively close to her and then a goon comes up right behind her, holds a knife to her throat, and you know Batman gets out of the out, out of the Batmobile. The goon is threatening Batman that he's gonna he's gonna kill this random woman if he steps any closer, and. Now, you you got to describe to me exactly what happens here with this new gadget. 
Well, I mean, it's, it's not a new gadget so much. He, he's, he shoots his grappling hook mm-hmm. behind this clown's face. The clown's got the taser up against what are you gonna do, Bats? And then, you know, Bat, the, uh, the grappling hook misses him, and the clown's feeling cocky, like, you missed! And then, apparently, Batman's super strength, <laughs> he just, it's, it's like, when the Joker carried the full weight of the gargoyle in the last movie, these people just have insane strength. Mm-hmm. He just pulls out like like a like a chunk, just a full hearty, meaty chunk of this concrete wall with his with his grapple hook boom knocks the dude out which leads me to bonus category Catwoman gadget (laughs) Selena ends up picking up her first gadget uh, which is the taser that she was almost tased with. And mm-hmm. it's the first hint also of Selena Kyle's dark side, because after she has her bumbling encounter, where she's sort of like thanking Batman and being self-deprecating and Batman stands silently with what I call his Morticia Adams lighting where they light just very specifically his eyes mm-hmm. uh, and he just walks away stoically picks up the taser and we get that hint of the Selena Kyle repressed side where she tases the knocked out clown on the ground. So we know, you know, there's something going on. She him in the gut, right? Like, after she's saved, she, like, kicks him in the gut and then picks up the taser and zaps the guy who's who's basically dead at this point anyway. More power to Selena at this point. She's had a bad morning. She gets mugged. Batman doesn't give her the romantic inter-exchange that she's hoping for, so, you know, all the clowns, Selena. Yeah, 
I mean, all Batman ever does is give her the old once-over. He looks, you know, he looks down and up at her and then just walks away. So, I mean, at least good for her for for picking up the taser and, and just getting a little bit of that aggression out because Lord knows she's had a bad enough day. And it's her first gadget. One thing this movie is uh, great at is that old, uh, if you show a gun at the beginning of the movie, it better pay off. We get a lot of that. We get lots of <laughs> items that show up throughout the movie that end up becoming the thing later. Mm-hmm. My, my notes are apparently very sparse for this section, but I do remember that, that of course, Commissioner Gordon's like, God, what took you so goddamn long, Batman? <laughs> Why the hell didn't you come here earlier? This place is in ruins. <laughs> Jesus Christ, you asshole. Show up when we need you, you jackass. Well, this uh, also, of course, we have the first of the emotional through line of the whole movie, which is the Max and Chip relationship. Mm-hmm. Where... The Red Triangle Gang is trying to kidnap Max and uh, his big son, future Leatherface Chip, is like, No, Dad! He's kind of a job. No, Dad! You go! I'll stay here and block him for you! <laughs> so Chip is... Chip is blocking for Dad, and Max pieces out, runs past punks of like really epic, decaying Art Deco, Gotham City backgrounds, and then just gets comically <laughs> dropped. <laughs> Through a sewer grate into the sewers by the penguin who's been running around <laughs> in the shadows this whole time. <laughs> it's amazing. And it's the beginning of the, uh, of the whole, uh, setup of. Max Shrek being un-frickin-flappable. He is surrounded by the penguin and his goons and all these literal penguins in this crazy ice amphitheater and he's saying he's unflappable. 
the pavements tried to like extort him and, and blackmail him and bring up all these things about why Max should help him. And the whole time Max is like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> uh, but I'm, uh, I, uh, you know, it's, uh, frankly, I have a bum rap. Uh, you know, what are you gonna do for me? Uh, what can I do for you? He is just so even keel in every situation. I just imagine this is Christopher Walken in his life. Nothing affects Christopher <laughs> It's really the scene is so over the top visually but Christopher Walken's character steals the entire scene by just being unaffected by the fact that a penguin man is trying trying to make a deal with him and laying out all of the various murders and blunders he's made over the years as a reason. Max mm-hmm. Shrek is amazing. He's <laughs> terrible. He's disgusting. But in the face of the penguin, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I remember that the that the penguin, when he's trying to extort Max Shrek, he's trying to say, you know, we've we've got a whole, we've got an entire room full of toxic waste that was created from your textile factories, and Max Shrek is like. That could be anybody's toxic waste. <laughs> and he's, you know, he's talking about some other finding some some questionable documents that that prove I forget what it was, and and he, of course Max Shrek says, "Look, that didn't happen." But if it did, I would be sure to shred those documents. And of course, Danny DeVito pulls out the documents and says, You know, a little patience and a lot of tape makes a big world of difference. <laughs> and, uh, of course, the last thing is, uh, Danny DeVito asks, uh, him, Yes, Christopher Walken. Sorry, I'm just referring to them by actors now. Uh, he, asks, he asks about uh, Christopher Walken's... Uh, his business partner, his former business partner. And 
Chris Frog is like, he's probably just on an extended vacation. And of course, then the penguin just pulls out the guy's hand and is like, oh, really? (laughs) So, but yeah, during this entire time, it's just, it's just Christopher Walken being stoic Christopher Walken, not really reacting to anything that's going on around here. But apparently, I I guess it was, I don't know which one it was. I guess it was just the fact that, that he has more dirt on Christopher Walken that Christopher Walken finally decides to, to help him out, to help him ascend from the sewers and return to polite society and they shake on it of course the penguin is shaking Christopher Walken's hand with Christopher Walken's dead partner's hand which I thought was a nice touch so good a little bit and then Chris Frog is like, oh. But he's like, and he's not even reacting to the fact that he's shaking a dead person's hand. He's just like, eh. Un-frickin-flappable. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. And then we get our first... I think this is the first scene of Selena Kyle in her magnificent Gotham apartment. Oh my god. The the apartment setup scene. So good. Like, this is... How do you afford that much? Like, I don't... I don't know how much executive assistants get paid at Shrekco or whatever uh, Max Shrek's business is called, but either she's making a lot of money as an executive assistant or Gotham has some incredible rent control because that apartment is massive and incredible. Well, what's interesting is, you know, it is a little run down, but space-wise, she's basically rocking like a two-bedroom Victorian apartment all by herself. She is executive assistant to the CEO of what is what people call Gotham Santa Claus. So, you know, she should be bringing home a good amount of money. 
but also it's 1992, and we're very aware, you know, she's got this whole, even in her, in her monologue during this scene, she's got this working girl, Dolly Parton, um, I forget Dolly Parton's like a famous, I think it might have been called Working Girl movie actually. It might have been. Uh, in the 80s, but yes, there's, there's, there's a dynamic going on where surely she's not getting paid the same that a female executive assistant would be getting paid nowadays. Mm-hmm. But I mean, you know, 
and it was just it's it's we're just talking about relics of the past now at this point unfortunately mm-hmm. so she gets a call from her mom and her mom is disappointed that she's not going to come back and visit her in the hall during the holiday season because i guess her mother does not approve the fact that she's trying to make it in the big city. No, absolutely not. How could a woman live alone and have a job in the big city? It's crazy. Mm-hmm. And then I don't remember the order of the next two messages. I think one of them was from some dude who I guess she was she had fancied but apparently he is going to go on some big Christmas uh, outing alone because according to his therapist who he's probably sleeping with who knows Sounds like a, the kind of guy who would sleep with his therapist. Uh, they, he needs space. Oh yeah, she makes some comment about how uh, she should have let him win at racquetball. Yeah, so... Yeah. She shows, she has a bit of a competitive side to her. Even if it doesn't seem like it yet at this point. And athletic. Yeah. Like, apparently, Michelle Pfeiffer actually learned kickboxing for this movie. Not only, Sam, did she learn kickboxing, she practiced and learned how to use whips. She did the whip stunts in in this movie. Yeah. It's it's pretty impressive the length that some actors will go to to learn how their characters work in certain movies. It's pretty incredible. It's I'm a little jealous. Actors basically get to learn new skills on a regular basis. It's, it's, it's freaking rad. Yeah, and then they just, all they have to do to do that is just commit to a few minutes of screen time, and that's it. It's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, then there's also a, I guess it's like a, I don't know if this is what, like, targeted ads were back in the early 90s, or if that was just a robocaller thing, sort of thing, where it's just an advertisement for Lady Lady Gotham Perfume, or Gotham Lady Perfume, or something, I forget exactly what it was called. And, you know, she skips by that because it talks about having 
about attracting men with this amazing new perfume. Yeah, that becomes the catalyst for the breakdown in the second part of the scene. Yeah. Uh, I, have, I have some things to say about that. Yeah. And then the last message that she has after she's taken her shoes off and she's like okay at least I can rest for the evening and it's a message from her to herself that she immediately realizes oh shit I have to go back to the office because I have to prepare these reports for this big meeting between Christopher Walken and Bruce Wayne the next day. So she, you know, puts her shoes back on and goes back to the office because this is a big important meeting and she has to do her secretarial duties as I'm sure Christopher Walken prefers to think of the mass. Yeah, I mean, this leads into pretty much goes straight into the next scene where okay, it does. It's a cut to where Shrek has been released from the penguin's lair and he's returned to the office to find Selena Kyle rifling through some files. Right. And, you know, she's caught off guard, kind of just talking a mile a minute about how she'd been prepping for these briefs and being kind of a bumbling, very honest individual says that not only has she helped prepare and set everything up for the next morning or whenever the meeting, upcoming meeting with Bruce Wayne as a potential investor, uh, she's also accessed the classified files these protected documents. Protected? And, you know, Max Shrek is playing it kind of close to the vest, but <laughs> he's clearly not pleased, and he's got a menacing dynamic it kind of starts playing out you know he starts moving forward as she starts moving away as they as they have this dialogue which the by scene, the way can I just yeah, mention just as a pro tip which you should know this already but this movie proves 
don't use a pet's name as your password for your computer, guys. Don't do that. Don't use a pet's name. It's one of the most obvious things, and people are going to figure that out pretty easily. And also... I mean, but on the plus side, if you name your Chihuahua Geraldo, I'm okay with that. Yes, but Geraldo, great name. Don't use it as your password. Right, exactly. As another 1990s classic piece of cinema, Hackers, starring (laughs) Angelina Jolie, showed us is... Don't use sex, God, and love as your password either, because it's super easy to figure out. What if I just combine them, though? What if I do sex, God, love? Sex, God, love, no one would figure out. Except Uh now I'm going to access all of bank accounts because I'm pretty positive you done <laughs> I just got some grub up. <laughs> Don't use grub hub. They're, they're the worst. They're the worst of the of the food delivery services. Yeah, they're pretty terrible. Also, don't use any food. <laughs> also, don't use any food delivery services if you live in California now, because apparently Prop 22 has decided that anyone who works for a food delivery or ride-sharing service is now considered an independent contractor, so people can't get health insurance through those companies. So fuck them. Yeah. Punks. <laughs> Speaking of people we shouldn't trust, giant CEO billionaires. <laughs> so this scene, uh, you know, we have we have the Stan Winston connection between Batman Returns and Iron Man. We also have this scene, which reminds me, it has an echo of a scene from the first Iron Man, where Pepper Potts is getting information from the is it Jeff Bridges? Is that the character who plays Ironmonger? He played the dude in Big Lebowski. I mean, yes, Jeff Bridges was the Big Lebowski. Okay. I haven't seen the I haven't seen any of the Iron Man movies, so I don't know that one. You're fine. But I do know the Jeff Bridges. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Skip. Skip all of them except the first one. The last two are garbage. But the first one, there is a scene where 
Epperpot's an executive assistant is getting secret information about an alternative energy option in a, in a like, secret setting where the big CEO person is kind of like pressuring her and it's very ominous and questionable. It's a, it's a mirroring scene in a lot of ways that stood out to me, which was funny. Especially because there's plenty of parallels between Tony Stark and, and Batman and Bruce Wayne. Yeah, uh, I could see that. The difference is, is that uh, Jeff Bridges does not push Gwyneth Paltrow out of a window, and in this case, uh, Christopher Walken, uh, Max Shrek, definitely pushes Slim Cotton out of a window. <laughs> in a very like, visceral, dramatic scene, actually. This is kind of intense. Yeah, because apparently what the plan is for this power plant is that it's not going to be providing power to Gotham. It's going to be taking power from Gotham and I guess storing it so that basically the entire city will be beholden to Max Shrek because he will have the actual, the literal power in this case, and they would have to basically use his company to power the city. It's not just Max Shrek, though, Sam. It's his quote-unquote legacy that he wants to leave behind for his son, Chip, which oh. is the sweetest thing. <laughs> okay, sure, right. I'll, I'll give you that. I'll give you that. But... <laughs> Silly's doing it in a really ominous way. <laughs> you gotta say, you gotta admit that. No. What wouldn't a father do for his son? That's all I'm saying. I mean, I'm not a billionaire, so I don't know if I would kill people for my son. But also, I don't have a son, so it's entirely speculative at best. I don't know. N never mind. I'm not even gonna get into the thoughts of. I'm not even gonna say something that I was about to say on tape. So, sorry, not on tape. 
on on page, Sam. You're suddenly thinking analog just because we have one tape recorder going on. It comes up it's again. Selena Giles. It comes, comes up again. <laughs> So, so Mac Shrek is like looming over Selena, and you know he's he's saying, you know, it feels like he's vaguely threatening that he's gonna kill her, and he kind of leans in, like he's he's being very menacing. It seems like. He's gonna shove her out the window. And he just leans back and he's like, Gotcha! And, you know, Selena starts laughing because she's like, Oh, thank God, I thought you were gonna kill me. And then he fucking pushes her out the window anyway. (laughs) And it's like, it, it wasn't even like, it wasn't even like a gentle nudge. He just like, Shoves. He just pushes, and there's this loud, just shatter of the glass, and there's this this primal scream as she falls. You know, dozens of stories down, and just. It's it's terrifying, quite honestly, when that happens. And he just walks away emotionless. Yeah. Like, oh, I just finished a poop. Gotta go. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But apparently there were enough cloth overhangs between her and the ground that it sort of slowed her fall enough to where it seems like she probably would have only gotten away with a broken back as opposed to just instantly splattering on the ground. So... That's something, I guess. Although, unquestionably, she, like, she did die. She just didn't splatter. Yeah. Right, no, she's definitely, at, at the very least, she has a completely shattered spine. At worst, which is probably what happened, She's probably dead. Yeah. And then comes Miss Kitty <laughs> to the rescue. <laughs> and, and I feel very confident in, in this assertion I'm about to make. Miss Kitty calls all of her hookups all those two tomcats 
that she's been just toying around with. <laughs> that, we, that we hear about from Selena. She calls all those dudes to come and do their weird cat voodoo. Bite on her fingertips reanimation thing that, you know, all alley cats can do. Mm-hmm. Surely. <laughs> yeah. To reanimate. I mean, look. <laughs> it's, it's not really a trust, Sam, but she's a zombie, right? She is 100% a zombie. <laughs> okay, yes. It's kind of weird how many films we've watched recently on this podcast where a character comes back to life as a zombie, but we, we don't entirely... Like, the movie never explores that idea, or they never explicitly say, oh, this character's a zombie, but they're definitely zombies. Like, Inigo Montoya in The Princess Bride, he's 100% a zombie for the last, like, 10-15 minutes of that movie, but they never actually bring that up, and... Pretty sure Selena Kyle's a zombie for at least 75% of this movie. Yeah, I mean, there's a difference between being revived and then becoming reanimated through the magic powers of feline bites. Mm-hmm. You know, this isn't your... This isn't your cat burglar professional thief, Selena Kyle. This is your reanimated corpse, mentally psychotic, gender-beaten-down, Assistant Selena Kyle. This is this is Tim Burton's Selena Kyle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she's so great from this point on. She's Michelle Pfeiffer brings so much to this role. And mm-hmm. really, I am. I think she was just so amazingly cast. So, Selena Kyle's a zombie, as we've established, and we get our return to her apartment, which I I really like the parallels that they did to her first apartment scene but things are off because she's a zombie now 
because she enters the like she the first time she opens the door she says honey I'm home oh right I'm not married and then she closes the door this time she opens the door leaves it open and it says Honey, I am home. <laughs> oh, right. I'm not married. It's like in this dead tone. <laughs> and then, you know, the first scene, she like drops her keys and her purse and whatever over on this, this table. This one, she just sort of drops them on the floor. <laughs> Yeah, I love Yeah, I just I love the little like the little the nuance the differences between these two scenes because it's like first she's like, Oh thank god I'm home. This time it's like I don't think she knows what's going on. <laughs> no, mentally she's not there. It really is like her brain is rebooting right now. Mm-hmm. And whatever mystical, magical realism situation that this cat woman has going on. Mm-hmm. They even... I think it's typically when she's in the Catwoman suit, but from this point on, I feel like her skin tone is even a little bit paler, like implying a little bit of death. Yeah, it definitely is. Like, Michelle Pfeiffer was not like the... She's not like a super tan person to begin with but there's definitely more of there's like a lot more sort of shadow under the eyes and like her face looks a bit more sort of sullen a little bit and there's definitely like a slightly lighter skin tone so she definitely seems more there's like you said a bit of an air of death about her like there was that there was not 10 minutes ago yeah and then probably one of my favorite parts of this scene when she goes over to the refrigerator to pour some milk for her cat and she just sort of pours milk all over the floor and then starts just guzzling milk like like it is her lifeblood as she's listening to her mother plead for her to call back like two or three times but this time she really doesn't seem to care about uh, about what her what her mom wants for her wants from her 
And I don't remember if there are any other messages besides the one that sets her off. Were there any others, or was it just those those couple from her mom? It's basically the all like the mom, and then it goes straight to the Gotham Lady perfume from Shrek Department Store with that line it's something along the lines of you know, if you use this your boss may ask you to stay late for a candlelight dinner which, you know Bad timing uh, yeah. for a few robot message. <laughs> Which, like, I think it follows up with available at Shrek department stores, and then she fucking snaps. She just. She destroys that answering machine. And, like... She takes down... It's this whole, like... She destroys... You know, she's stuffing her stuffed animals in the garbage disposal. And, mm-hmm. and it's basically just anything wholesome and young and girly she's just destroying this kind of more punk rock aesthetic yeah like she's she's just smashing things on the wall and just breaking stuff with a frying pan. She gets out a can of spray paint and for some reason draws a big line around the apartment. I'm not quite sure why that why she did that except for the for the sake of destruction, I guess. I thought she actually like stabbed that uh, the, the stuffing, the stuffed animal into the garbage disposal and just turned it on as, as more cats are just entering the apartment. Like, there are like a dozen cats that come into the apartment <laughs> while all this stuff is happening. <laughs> I mean, cats... We all know that cats will just knock a, uh, a glass of water off the table. I mean, she's destroying herself like a cat. Like, what's, what's really going on is it's an emotional breakdown. And she's rejecting the person that she's been her whole life. But, uh, also, cats just fuck shit up, so it works on two levels. That's true. And 
I guess it gets to a point where she's, she goes into her, her closet and she like tosses a bunch of clothes out and then she finds this like leather latex jacket or something. She, you know, she pulls it out, she cuts it up a bit. She's apparently a very talented seamstress because within moments she has this perfectly fitting glove that she puts on and then she like attaches some little spikes to the ends of them. I was like, that's that's actually pretty impressive. How how um, her seamstress skills and just the fact that she can do that in such a short amount of time. Because the next time we see her, she is in. Should we say encased? Is that the right word? in this suit. So, one quick thing. This movie definitely, there's some issues with passing of time. The only clear passing of time we get is the beginning of the movie where told is a 33-year jump in time. <laughs> Other than yeah. that, there's portions in this movie later where somebody's rolling up a Catwoman actually is you know, crawling up a wall, and then suddenly she's at the top of the skyscraper. So, or or you know we. Or it seems like perhaps days have passed sometimes. So there's lots of unexplained or unacknowledged time gaps. But yes. For me, it seems like this movie, it could either take place over like three days or about three weeks but we're never quite made clear on that yeah exactly in my head it's just the month of December mm-hmm. that seems to work to your point though yeah it's in case is a pretty good word the fitting process for Catwoman's latex suit in this movie, once it was put on, they actually vacuum sealed it to her. Literally vacuum sealed it to her body. So, <laughs> that was an element. Oh, that was an element of the fitting process. Oh my god. Yeah, isn't that crazy? So... Like, how... 
How'd she go to the bathroom then? Uh, what? How do you? How do you do that? That's a very good question because that was also one of the issues they had early on that they had to address once the costume was like literally on a human person. Uh, some of the initial issues in early production was that they realized, oh, oh Michelle Pfeiffer realized, uh, I have no way to go to the bathroom, so they had to address that as the movie went forward. <laughs> <laughs> that brings to mind The Wizard of Oz, the original Tin Man. Mm-hmm. The whatever paint they used to to cover him, to make him you know, silver or tin was, like, toxic to the guy. Oh, my God. Was like, so, like, he had to leave the... F I, think he f I think they switched roles or something. Like, he became the scarecrow or something. I forget what. John Reese davies and Lord of the Rings, he was allergic to all of his prosthetics, so he was just constantly, like, breaking oh, out in red rashes for that whole period of time. I mean, look, we, we talked earlier about how, like, actors basically get to learn all sorts of cool new abilities and things just to be able to do some a few minutes of screen time but also they make a lot of sacrifices like having to work in a skin tight cat suit for like hours on end with no way to go to the bathroom it's like good lord it's crazy and uh thus beginning i think some of the 1990s uh rental issues with this film was her mm -hmm. uh rocking the high heels vacuum sealed latex <laughs> look and also probably sparked a lot of young men's interest in BDSM, I would have to imagine. <laughs> More than likely. <laughs> Let me tell you what, that action figure of Catwoman was questionable. I had it. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. So now we're we're cutting to some other indeterminate point later on. Possibly the next day, possibly another six weeks from now, who knows. <laughs> <laughs> 
Maybe it's maybe it's the following year's Christmas. <laughs> it could be. We don't know. Cause I mean, you know, Selena Kyle did have to heal up from a from a shattered spine. That probably took a year of rehab. I would imagine. That's Although why she drank all that milk, Sam. It's good building strong bones. Doy. Uh, uh, of course. Yeah, okay. How could I be so ignorant? I'm You're sorry. You're drunk on candy bars right now. It's fine. Yes, I am, actually. So, the mayor is out in front of, like, 30 people, and he's apologizing for all of the crime that's happening, and he's trying to say, you know, it's not gonna happen under my watch and everything, and I think we... I think we kind of skipped over a little bit of the explanation of what exactly uh, Shrek and the Penguin are going to do. Oh, because, because I think the whole idea was that Shrek wants the mayor to be recalled, so... He, so Shrek, can have his power plant. And the big idea, well, I guess, I guess, actually, no, I think this might come up later when they just, when they describe exactly what they want to do. Yeah, this is coming up, but the, all the stage is being set. Shrek doesn't like the mayor. The mayor mm-hmm. is dealing with a city it, it just in chaos at the moment. So the stage is being set for this whole offer that Shrek very soon gives to us. Right. But this is not the moment yet. This is the big okay. moment. So the, the mayor's trying to appease the crowd by saying, you know, I'm not just the mayor. I'm a husband and I'm a father. And he points to his wife and his, you know, his infant child. who They're just there, you know, for some reason. While he's talking... What appears to be a circus acrobat just sort of flips out of nowhere, walks up, steals the baby, and then as no one is doing anything, he the guy walks up to the microphone and says something like, I'm not much for speeches. So we'll just say, thanks. And then he just flips away as, again, no one does anything. (laughs) And 
I have to point this out. There, this was the one other actor who I needed to figure out who this was. Because his face and his voice were so familiar to me. But I couldn't think of it off the top of my head when I first saw this. The name of the actor is Gregory Scott Cummins. And I knew the name, but I couldn't remember who he was. He plays Mac's dad on It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. No way! Yeah. I wonder if that's when a relationship formed between those actors. It very well could have. Because, oh. I mean, even though... He only had the one scene, and he had two lines of dialogue. It must have made, maybe it made an impression on Danny DeVito, I don't know. Who knows, you know, what kind of uh, behind the scenes interaction and banter was going on just because they only shared one scene. Mm-hmm. And they kind of didn't even share the scene, because we never actually... Oh no, we do see them together very briefly. Yeah, they the, passed the baby off in the sewer. Yeah. But one of the things I didn't notice until my second viewing was after he... He very deftly just hops down into the manhole that the penguin had opened up beforehand, then we hear him say, Oh no, it's the penguin man. Here, take the baby, but leave me alive, or whatever it was he said. Like he's he's trying to he's trying to make the penguin seem like a like a terror, like a person who would be terrifying to a criminal. <laughs> and then we see, we see the penguin holding the baby in, he's also standing in his duckmobile, which does a lot of work throughout this movie. The very first sighting of the Duckmobile, too. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't... Like, there's a point earlier where the penguin says something like, You flush it, I find, I find it. It's like, who... Where, where did he get that? Like, did someone flush that down the toilet? How did that work? Well, we see later when the Batmobile is being dissected by the by his red triangle game. But this is a surprisingly technologically savvy group of circus misfits. So, that's true. Like, unexpectedly, they produced schematics for the Batmobile. 
<laughs> that must have been on the road. So I don't think it probably made this. It's a exact replica from the duck he had when he was a feral little boy, so <laughs> that is a good point. So it has like a a lift mechanism built into it somehow because it you know it rises up and he he like magically sort of to to the people from the outside to Gotham's stupidest residence it seems as if he is magically floating up out of the sewers and holding the baby, you know, and as, as he hands off the baby to the mayor, it's like, holy crap, who is this miracle man who has saved this baby from this wild, incredible, crazy circus acrobat who apparently is going to play a psychopathic murderer later on in, in his life. <laughs> yeah, that is, uh, that's, that's pretty much the intro. So up to this point, he's just been a myth to the people of God. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Max Shrek. I think at this point we kind of see him publicly sort of swoop the penguin up, which implies all the things that are to come in their relationship. And I think the next part is where they're at. They're back at Shrek. Industries or whatever with Bruce Wayne, right? They don't. I can't remember if there's more dialogue or not. No, yeah, the next jump is the press conference, so, you know. Oh, okay. It's moments okay. after. This is the second time we've seen Batman this whole movie. So we first see him at 13 minutes, and mm -hmm. finally see him again at 35 minutes. <laughs> sort of continuing, setting the, the stage for the fact that uh, Batman movies aren't so much about Batman. <laughs> They're more about his villains. Although, to Michael Keaton's credit, he apparently went through the script and cut a lot of dialogue out from his character, hmm. saying that he didn't think that Bruce Wayne necessarily needed to speak as much that he needed to be more of a presence, which I thought was an interesting perspective. Yeah. I actually still think he is 
the best for Swain. I would agree. For a variety of reasons. But that alone just seemed it there's some quote in the butcher, but as Bruce Wayne, he didn't mind dialogue, but as Batman, he thought the less he said, the better, and it was more about him making the best out of the suit and what that did what that represented what he could do with that. Mm-hmm. I thought was pretty cool. But yeah, 35 minutes into the film, <laughs> we finally see Batman again in the movie called Batman Returns. <laughs> well, he returned, didn't he? <laughs> yes, he did. <laughs> At 35 minutes. <laughs> Which is a third of the way through the movie. (laughs) Actually, I wrote that down on my notes. It's like, oh right, Bruce Wayne is a character in this movie. (laughs) Like, in this moment. Like, oh yeah, I forgot. (laughs) He exists. But that's really just... It's, I think, because, uh, you know, there's such a spectacle just happens. So we see Bruce Wayne um, taking in the Penguin's presence, and he doesn't trust him. And, you know, Alfred's setting up the tree and just having a wonderful Christmas. <laughs> Alfred's having a great time. Just like he's he's probably so happy, he can't wait for Bruce to open his presents this fall. He's like, "Oh, what you watching, Master Bruce?" And Bruce is like, "Oh, some news. This guy's parents." And Alfred's like, "Oh, that's great. I love when Bruce watches television." We're in the same room together. Oh, Alfred. He's just so happy. He never got his... He never got his butler grandbabies. But, you know, he's still got some time with Bruce. (laughs) But it's a short scene. We come back to them... Considering we don't see him very much in this first part of the movie, we, we come back to them very quickly. But, you know, this next scene is this whole, correct me if I'm wrong, we jump to the, it's like the Hall of Records. Am I right? Yes. That, yeah, because okay. the, the whole... The whole thing that the penguin, once he's on camera, he's trying to say, like, all he wants to do is find out who his, what his name is and who his parents were and everything. Like, he's giving this air of sympathy that 
we should care about him because he was so... He was just tossed away like a piece of garbage because his parents thought he would not be uh, beneficial to them as being in high society because of his deformities. But all he wants to do is know what his name was. So, you know, people, Gotham's residents, prove their stupidity by cheering and thinking, Oh, yeah, he's a perfect sympathetic character. So then they go off to the Hall of Records. Suddenly he has his monocle, which I, I don't know if, like, was that also flushed down the toilet and he's just using it? Or... Uh, who's to say? I mean, you know, we've never seen him read at this point. It's the first time he's going through a lot of documents, so... He's, he's lived his whole life in the sewers. How does he know how to read? Well, you know, he grew up with carnies. They probably had a bunch of instructions for, like, how to fix the Gravitron or the Ferris wheel. So maybe he learned how to read from just, like, your general maintenance books. For some reason, in my head, when I watched this the first time, and for some reason it seems to have stuck in my head, my idea of how he was raised was that he was, he was collected by penguins and then raised by said penguins, even though he lived underneath a zoo where I'm sure there were lots of other people who, who probably raise him or something. Like the circus, like he said, they probably were the people who raised him. But for some reason in my head, it's like, no, he spent the last 33 years in the sewers. No, he probably didn't actually. <laughs> Especially because there's a scene where Bruce Wayne, actually right after this, we're, after, we're at the Hall of Records, where Bruce Wayne's like researching newspaper articles about the circus that has, that was in town and then got shut down because apparently kids went missing and uh, the police were trying to uh, investigate and interview these the circus people. But there was one person, a quote-unquote bird boy, who was who managed to escape. 
before questioning. Which Sam brings us to our next bullet point of Alfred throws shade. <laughs> where yeah. in the scene Alfred is still not entirely convinced that Bruce Wayne is going on the right track. He's like, why? What's the deal? Why are you so focused on this guy? <laughs> and I think the line is, must you be the only lonely man beast in town, Bruce? <laughs> Throwing some more shade at Alfred is known to do. While, while at the same time also basically considering calling Bruce like uncultured swine because Alfred prepares him a vichyssois, you know, a cold soup. And Bruce is like, this is cold. And Alfred's like, it's supposed to be cold. Throwing some Alfred shade. <laughs> <laughs> I think Alfred Shade would have to be my name if I ever created a punk rock band. My alter oh, ego. Yeah. There's only there's only only one other one of with Michael Goff or Go or however you pronounce his name, which I don't know if you're looking forward to that one, but I am. I'm not. (laughs) I'm not. I will do it. Okay. Cool. So Bruce Wayne thinks that the Penguin was a circus freak who ran away from the circus after the circus was shut down because apparently some kids started disappearing in the circus, which they never actually bring that up again afterwards. Like, well, what the hell happened? Like, what were the... Or did these kids become more... Did they, like, become part of this gang? Or what exactly happened? Who knows? 
it became part of the game. Okay. After that, we come to the cemetery scene where the penguin suddenly has a top hat. I don't know where he got it. Um, Max Shrek probably gave it to him. That's true, because Max was also wearing a top hat in that scene. Yeah, it's part of the style of Gotham. I forgot to mention one of the lines, I don't remember it verbatim, but one of the lines in the Hall of Records, because we kind of skipped over that a bit, was there's like a bunch of media people trying to get into the Hall of Records to sort of view the Penguin as he's trying to find his parents and that sort of thing. And uh, Max Shrek basically says something to the effect of screw your First Amendment rights. And it's like, oh god, this is feeling a little bit too close to home nowadays. Oh yeah, that's also the introduction of what I in my head refer to as the low-budget Knox. Knox being the reporter from the first movie who had the hots for Vicky Vale. Oh, yeah! Because he kind of has a similar vibe with how he talks and the way he calls people out or asks questions. He's, he's mustachioed. <laughs> Because he's yelling fidget of the press, but every time we have a reporter say something throughout this movie, it's that guy, low budget Knox. Hmm. I didn't even realize it was the same person doing that every time, but. Good call out. That was, uh, yeah, I, I forgot about him. Yeah. But just the the fact that Max Shrek or Christopher Walken or whatever you want to call him was basically saying like, your First Amendment rights don't matter. Let the man study in peace or whatever his his excuse was. It was like, oh God, this is feeling very uncomfortable. Well, what's, uh, you know, without pigeonholing this particular episode too much into the depressing pit of winter 2020, <laughs> the nice thing about any corrupt businessman and politician story is it's the same story again and again which just proves that humans never learn their lessons so it's always applicable for any time the thing that always happens happens again yeah it just considering the last four years this movie strikes 
true a little bit too close to home, though. But Sam, who plays the penguin in reality? <laughs> the soon-to-be ex-president Orange 45. Okay, well, I didn't be explicit about it. Oh, uh, sorry. <laughs> I mean, you know, look, uh, not a person with zero political experience, but for some reason has uh, some sort of charismatic sway over the stupidest people in a particular area somehow gets the backing of other rich white billionaires and makes an attempt at overthrowing the not actually corrupt, but he tries to claim that they're corrupt current administration just by, you know, lies and slander. It, you know, I'm sorry. It just, like, once that, when the next scene comes up, when he's having his next press conference where he's talking about running for mayor. It's like, oh god, he is the soon-to-be ex-president Orange 45. It's like, oh man, I feel queasy. But at least in Batman Returns, the billionaire CEO has a true heart has a true love in his life, which is his son. True. Unlike the, uh, <laughs> unlike the soon-to-be ex-president and his sons. <laughs> but yes, okay. Freedom of the press. Vichy Swasu. Cemetery. Oh yeah, we got continuing you know our you know what if scenario of Bruce Wayne we have the dead parents one rose for each parent Mm -hmm. this time instead of a uh, stalker Potential girlfriend following him to an alleyway with a bunch of reporters. And um, after he he sees the burial plots, he, he does the dramatic fall to his knees thing, which that probably hurts a lot. Even if he's falling into a bunch of like fake snow and he probably has some pads on his knees because Stanley DeVito is not particularly young when he made this movie. He was still in his like 
late 40s when he did this movie. He's also well padded. I mean, we talked about... Yeah. Michelle Pfeiffer's vacuum seal situation. But I think David DeVito's makeup, prosthetics, and body padding was about a four and a half hour process. We got down to about three hours, but he is heavily padded. He's not. And if you know, you know, say what you will about his physique, but he's not a potato. No, but I mean, like, I mean, as much padding as they might have given him for like his, his, his gut and his, his. But I don't think they really gave him much padding on his knees. Like it's it's kind of just hurt to fall on your knees like that. I don't know. He, he went for it. Oh he yeah. Committed. I mean, the whole movie, the guy's pretty much just his mouth is just always full of that weird. Die and mouthwash solution that he just is always just spitting that black penguin <laughs> liquid out of his mouth. Yeah, it's it's actually kind of neat that they they sort of kept the continuity with certain scenes of that happening, like how you like, you'll see it start to dribble out of his mouth a bit, and then it just sort of stays there around his, around like his chin and everything for like an entire scene. I like the little nod there to just sort of keeping that stuff on his face which just makes him that much more disgusting he is so committed to being disgusting and I love it I love it yeah. so he walks out of the cemetery and he announces that his name, and actually I kind of like the, the sort of pause that Danny DeVito gives, because it almost looks like he feels like his name is kind of ridiculous, because it's like, it, he just sort of looks off and he's like, say this name out loud it's not like his name is you know Jefferson Smith the third or whatever it's like my name is Oswald Cobblepot like that's I guess 
That's a ri- that is a ridiculous name that someone in the 40s probably thought up for like, oh, this is definitely what an extremely rich person is named. Like, where would you come up with a name like that? It just, like, it sounds ridiculous, and it does sound like a sort of, you know, billionaire sort of name, but it also sounds Really stupid. I'm sorry. It's a stupid stuffy. There's no question. It's an extremely stuffy name. It's the type of name that you would expect the person to have a cigarette holder and a monocle, which turns out he does. Yeah. And uh, the crowd cheers. Was it the same reporter who asks, since you know your parents are dead, you're not going to be able to get forgiveness from them for them throwing you in the river and leave you to die? And he said, you know, I forgive them. And everyone loves him now. Oh, yeah. One that is definitely low-budget Knox, once again. (laughs) And uh, we cut to all of this little montage of Gothamites reacting to the headlines about it. And by far my favorite quote are two people talking about it one woman goes, he's like a frog that became a prince. <laughs> and the man goes, no, he's more like a penguin. And they just cut. They just cut away from it. It's the best. It's, it's amazing. <laughs> I think I, I think one of the other lines that I remember I didn't hear until my second time watching was I think one of the people said something like he's so big he he feels like he's five feet tall instead of the line which is usually like he's supposed to feel like you're ten feet tall or whatever it's yeah. like it's like yeah. Oh, that makes sense. I like to think that even though Daniel Waters really wrote this, that maybe some of these gems are left over from our, our beloved Sam Ham. <laughs> I'd like to think that, too. It's... <laughs> uh, <laughs> Not only do we have this montage of Gothamites having these fantastic lines, but we hard cut from this goofy line (laughs) to a woman being mugged in an alleyway. 
these are the highs and lows that you get cut between in Batman Returns. This is our first sort of introduction to Catwoman, who apparently does not know how to walk, but can only travel via cartwheels and flips. Oh yeah. And honestly, that's pretty impressive. Not for, for like the person who is portraying Catwoman doing the flips and cartwheels and things, because she probably had to do the same process Michelle Pfeiffer had to with the with the bodysuit. So being able to do that sort of stuff while also in that uh, vacuum sealed cat suit is pretty impressive, I will say that. And as Leisha Silverstone says as Batgirl in Batman and Robin. Not only does she do that, but she does it in high heels. <laughs> it's, uh, it's actually quite impressive being able to do those kinds of, like, gymnastic moves in a vacuum sealed bodysuit and high heels. The scene is a great moment too because both villains are mirroring Batman and Bruce Wayne. This is your typical Batman saves a girl in an alleyway scene and Catwoman has this sort of moment where she's talking to this woman that she just saves after ruthlessly clawing the mother's face with her claws and just like knocking them out <laughs> where she's talking to the to the damsel distress saying, you know always waiting for a Batman to save you such and such for you but you know this is an element this is a moment where she's kind of talking to her past self as well because mm. it's, it's not just like that she's talking to this lady like the lady thanks her and she's trying to be genuinely thankful to Catwoman and Catwoman just grabs her face and is like just in this terrifying threatening it's like you're just waiting for Batman to come save you it's like oh god <laughs> She is, she is much more chaotic than, uh, Oh, yeah. She's all yeah. over the place, mentally. Mm-hmm. I mean, 
she's a zombie, so it makes sense if she's not as level-headed, I guess, as even, you know, Batman would, would be, I guess. Yeah. As level-headed as any of these costume vigilantes are. Mm-hmm. We definitely see how, how over the place she is in the next scene, but she comes in, she comes in a little bit later and begins with. Yeah. So this is the scene where Bruce Wayne and Max Shrek are meeting to discuss the power plant thing, because I guess... Shrek wants Wayne to be an investor, or at least to help him try to convince the mayor that the power plant is a good idea, and Bruce Wayne basically explains that no, this is not a good idea because there's already a power surplus. Max Shrek does not take it well. And Wayne is straight up like, I will fight you on this. Because <laughs> I think one of the lines, I actually wrote this down, that uh, I think that Shrek said was, no one can ever have too much power. So that, that seemed awfully prophetic. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, I think, I think Wayne said he wanted to, to potentially, not necessarily physically fight, but, uh, then Max Shrek calls himself Muhammad Shrek, because <laughs> I guess, I guess he actually does want to physically fight Bruce Wayne over this thing. So he, he makes some excuse about his secretary not being there. She's on vacation or something, but then she just kind of appears out of nowhere. Yeah, Chip brings her in, and Chip looks confused in the background. And, Tr and Shrek is like catatonic for a second after seeing. Selena walk in the door. And, of course, he's trying to cover saying something like, Bruce points out something like, she has a cut on her forehead or something, and Max says, Oh, are you okay from, did you have an accident when you were skiing? Oh, yeah, because Max's go-to for everyone he tries to murder is they're on vacation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, this is where we kind of get... Selena Kyle is no longer the sort of meek, terrified individual, because now she... She explains that 
she doesn't have amnesia because she remembers something about uh, a nun when she was in prep school having morning sickness and that one day she she forgot to wear her underwear to school and she remembers the name of the boy who noticed that she wasn't wearing underwear and then she says he's dead now <laughs> just like it's like just so matter of fact like okay yeah she's got this kind of like frantic stream of consciousness she no longer she's not the type of person who says I have a suggestion and then holds it back she just says whatever but she does say well last night no don't remember that at all and of course because the fact that she seems like a slightly unhinged character Bruce Wayne is immediately smitten oh, falls in love with it. her like immediately it's like oh okay Max is processing this and finally Selena is asked to escort Bruce, Bruce out so this is the first real time that they've had you know, they had their meet cute when, uh, <laughs> on the, uh, in the beginning when there's the, when there's, he saved her, and this is the first time where they officially met as Bruce Wayne and Kyle. They have some nice, I, I, they have good chemistry, and, so they have some banter as they walk out and she leaves them in the elevator. She apparently has to get back to work because I guess she's just still doing her job <laughs> and Max is just keeping her on payroll. Yeah. Which he's like unflappable because, you know, his whole thing is like, hey, if she tries to blackmail me, I'll push her out of a, out of a higher window. <laughs> and he just, and him and Chip just go off and have the best father-son day doing terrible <laughs> businessmen things. <laughs> Yeah, there's actually, I forgot, there is, there is a line where Shrek introduces Bruce to Selena, and Bruce says, oh yeah, we've met, and Selena says, what? He says, uh, no, I, I, I must have met somebody else, and she's like, Good cover, Bruce. You're a real smooth talker there. How are you a billionaire again? Well, <laughs> <laughs> Bruce doesn't got a thing for blondes. He gets flustered, you know. 
Vicky lets out her the most stable, even though, you know, she had her issues. But definitely, I think the most stable, and then we go to zombified stream of consciousness, manic, not pixie, uh, manic BDSM girl, and then we go straight to Chase Meridian, and we know she's batshit crazy. You know, works on several levels. Yeah. So, <laughs> and by the time we get to Batman Robin, Bruce is just no longer seeing women at that point. So, <laughs> that leads us to what you were talking about earlier, which is where Shrek goes to Oswald because he's going by Oswald now he's not Penguin he's accepted his, his human identity and he's in, he's in his little like loft area working at his desk well, literally all of this triangle gang is just sitting in a corner watching him. They're just watching him as he's going through all of the, the papers that he took from all of records, which we don't have a clear idea about what they are yet. But he's up to something. And this is where... He's up to no good. Yeah. They're gonna start some trouble in his neighborhood. Yeah. A couple of guys, yeah. But this is where Oswald's on a trajectory, but he gets sidetracked. So this is the portion where Shrek comes in and makes him the mayoral offer, which puts these plans on hold. You don't get to find out what Oswald's working on until later. The way that he tempts Oswald, at least with coming down to the, the main hall, the main room, is with a fish. <laughs> it's like, he's trying to convince Oswald to come down stairs for some reason, and Oswald's having none of it. And then, of course, Shrek produces a fish from some folded-up newspaper. And... Like, it's like, oh, fine. He starts eating this, you know, dead raw fish as they go downstairs. And I think he's holding a hat in front of Oswald's face. And then he goes, you know, lifts it away. And there's a whole bunch, there's this huge crowd of people. 
and they're all just sort of like standing and cheering as they see this creepy, decrepit sewer person eating raw fish. <laughs> like, they're cheering and it's like the scene where it cuts back to him the fish is like hanging it down in his chin and he just sort of slurps it in and it's like oh dear god <laughs> it's just like <laughs> such a great scene and then his his whole body like Gold Rush 49er onesie, which at some point I think was probably white, but it's just like grave. Yeah. It's so gross. Yeah. And so this is where they sort of make the announcement that they want to seek a recall for the mayor and they want to push Oswald to be the new candidate for mayor. And of course, because he is a sewer person or was a sewer person for 30 years, they, he has his image consultants to show up and just sort of try to figure out how to fix all of that. The first thing that the male image consultant has is to give him one of those the cigarette holders which he immediately spits out because like he's never had a cigarette before so of course he would find it gross <laughs> the lady image consultant starts to say well you know maybe you should put on some like gloves because people who we've interviewed think that those things are maybe not the most pleasant things to look at. She looks down at his like weird flipper hands. It looked like three of his fingers were just sort of joined together, right? It was just sort of like he had like a thumb and a finger and then his other three fingers are just sort of joined together. Yeah, I think that's pretty right on. When you, when you see his flesh hands, they've, you know, put some sort of thing over, and then when he starts dressing more dapper, I think he just gets to wear the uh, latex gloves without having to do all the added makeup, etc. The other guy, the, the male image consultant, walks around to something to the effect of, 
Oh, I guess there weren't too many mirrors down the sewers, were there? <laughs> and so Oswald's like, oh yeah, that's real funny. You know, it'd also be really terrible as if my my nose was pouring blood. And, you know, everyone's like, what? And then he leans over and he bites this guy's nose off. Yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, for the rest of this scene, there's this blood on his chin. It's like, oh god, it's so gross. But it's such a great character moment. What's so great is that you know, they react to it and then Chuck's like, Alright everybody, get back to work. We're gonna make a man. And everyone's pretty much getting back to work. Yep, like this is a normal thing that happens. And this is where they set up the dynamic. Because, you know, Shrek still has to kind of convince the Cobblepot to accept this. Because Cobblepot's like, I don't know, why would I do this? And Shrek is basically like, well, you know, you get, I think literally he says the word Poontang. It's like, well, you can get this Poontang. He says like two or three other things, like some sort of wealth and power. And all the while, while he's describing all the things that that Oswald could have as mayor, Oswald is staring at, I think it was the female image consultant. Yeah. Basically saying like, no, he wants to bang her. Because it was like Shrek at some points is something about, you know, you'll fill the void of being the mayor. And, and Oswald's like, I'd like to fill her void. And it's like, ah. Uh. But yeah, like he mentions like two or three things. And then the last thing he says is something like unlimited poontang. And that wins over Oswald, and it's like, all right, I'll run for mayor. Well, they also address uh, what we talked about earlier, which was almost a meta comment, but has to be resolved in the story, which is, it's December. Uh, elections are in November. Oh, yeah. <laughs> There's ways around that. He talks yeah. about the Gulf of Tonkin and uh, the Reichstag fire. And he's basically saying, like, I need your gang to cause so much mayhem that the mayor can be impeached and you can run in his place, pretty much. I think at Shrek one point, he mentions that his businesses 
have enough employees that if he just had all of them sign a recall thing, that they could recall the mayor just based on the number of employees he has. Yeah, he's Bezos, basically. He's pretty much Amazon. Yeah, exactly. The one other thing is that they have to decide on a platform that he wants to run for. And of course, his immediate idea is global cooling, which in 1992 sounded ridiculous, but in 2020 sounds like a pretty damn good idea, and I'm on board with him now. I'm back on his side. I mean, you know, he was addressing that global warming was, was an actual thing in 1992, so... To yeah, but, but, people, but people didn't care. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, yes, and to get uh, this whole campaign going, you know, he's gotta have the gang cause they get. Yep, which is what they do. Which is immediate chaos. Which is what they do. Yeah. It's, it's straight up to the Red Triangle Circus Gang just blowing up buildings and lighting stuff on fire. Batman shows up to punch people and kick people. Uh, you know, basically just one-shotting everybody because even though they are supposed to be the tough gang members, they can't stand up to the single punch of a man who's awkwardly flailing his arms around in a rubber suit. This brings us to another Batman gadget. Da -da 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 -da. <laughs> yes. Uh, the programmable battery. After Batman has fights, he is suddenly surrounded by multiple circus freaks, freaks. One of them holding a bazooka. <laughs> yeah. The other is the completely unaffected woman who has Darla the Poodle. <laughs> And after the programmable battering, which he has the buttons like a Tamagotchi, that's a dated reference, has really simple buttons. <laughs> and we get a battering shot. Throws it, like hits everybody in the face. A first-person battering shot. First-person. <laughs> it's like a GoPro <laughs> got put on top of a battering. Pre-GoPro. 
<laughs> Darla the Poodle catches the battering and they just roll off because that battering it's gonna come up later in the movie. Yeah, but Batman doesn't seem to give a shit. He's just like, okay, well, I guess that lady just took my battering, whatever. Yeah, move on. He, you know, he doesn't like fighting when, when he fights Catwoman pretty soon. It's a, it's a complicated scene for him. But this is also the second Batman murder that we get. You said the man's name earlier in the film, the giant guy, right? Mm-hmm. He comes upon this very burly clown, and somehow he's just going through the streets knocking, knocking fools out. He ends up with this comical bomb that's got like a full alarm clock on it. <laughs> and, he, and he attaches the bomb to this man's stomach, throws him into the sewers, and then an explosion. He just Blows this man Because he knows he can't defeat the man with hand-to-hand combat because the guy's like, go ahead, do your best. And Batman, like, puts all of his force behind this punch and the guy just immediately turns back and is like, Uh, beat me that way so yeah he straps a bomb to the guy's stomach and throws him in the sewer and explodes him so less of a body count still from the first Batman movie but a much more intentional body count (laughs) so far (laughs) yeah yeah And, uh, this is also our first scene of getting to watch Catwoman with the whip. Because she goes into, I guess this is is one of the Shrek department stores. Because it has the cat logo on it. She only knows how to move through the department store by cartwheeling through it. Again, it's like, I know high heels are difficult to walk in, but there are probably easier ways to walk around or traverse than by, you know, cartwheeling and and backflipping. But I'm not going to judge. It's fine. Well, Sam, I don't know if you have cats, but it's, you know, like any cat owner knows, cats cartwheel through houses. I I don't have a cat, so I will take your word for that. Yeah, you're just out of the loop. It's okay. That's how they move around. 
seems legit. She's like destroying some of the stuff in there. She's like using this whip to like destroy property and smash. She's smashing glass and everything. And these two security guards come up behind her and while she's still smashing stuff and you know they make some stupid sexist remarks about like I don't know whether to be afraid of her or ask her out white men gonna white men 90s <laughs> yeah and so she turns around and she will have none of that and uh, whips the shit out of them and they run away. <laughs> I noted there's a, there's the second Wilhelm scream. The first will the first full Wilhelm is here, but I don't remember what the scene was. <laughs> Yeah, it's somewhere in this scene. I think it was during... It's during the fight or right before the fight with the large clown man. But I don't remember what it was exactly. I just wrote down Wilhelm scream in my notes. So Catwoman, she like some paneling off the wall and I think she's like opening some natural gas lines or something is what it looks like mm-hmm. and uh, she tosses something into a microwave which is right there conveniently and also apparently plugged in and turns down the microwave and flips out of the department store. I think this is when Batman officially meets Penguin for the first time. This is their official meetup. All three of them meet. Batman is confronting Cobblepot and, you know, they're having some kind of brief exchange Penguin's comment is along the lines of you don't really think you can beat me. Of course, Catwoman cartwheels and flips into the scene. And then a giant explosion happens behind her. That's an introduction right there. (laughs) Then she runs away, cause... Oh no, Sam. She doesn't run away. She... This is where she just starts scaling a building at incredible speed. Unfortunately, the shot we see isn't that graceful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 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 
but the implication is the time jump again. Time means nothing in this film. <laughs> is that she, she can move at incredible speeds up buildings with the little sewing kit claws that she has. <laughs> She's just scaling the building, and the penguin uses uh, one of his umbrellas to start flying up in the air because yeah, he intends to find her because he, penguin likes any woman that's moving. <laughs> Which, by the way, we. We didn't mention all the other umbrellas that he has. Cause he shot off He's like got so many umbrellas. He shot off like four at this point. He shot off like a flamethrower umbrella, a gun umbrella, or a a gunbrella, I guess as we wanna call it. Gunbrella. I wonder if that was a bit of an influence for the the gunblade weapon from Final Fantasy VIII, because it's a similar idea, you know. That's it's a giant sword with a gun in the hilt, and when you attack. If you press, I think it's R1 or R2 on your PlayStation controller, then it gets additional damage because you're also pulling the trigger of the gun. So you're doing extra damage with your gun blade. It's very possible. I don't know what influence Batman had overseas on the people that were creating that series. But it's definitely a gun combo. At least thematically, it's similar. And he also has a um, an umbrella with a knife and the end, a retractable knife, a bayonet sort of thing. Which is kind of, I think, his classic. Yeah. And then he has this, which is like an, it's a, I forget what I called it. Umbrella copter? Yes. Perhaps? That's there what it was, go. an umbrella yeah. copter. That's just what it is. Like, he just, he holds it, and he, he flies off, which, you know, he's, he's pursuing Catwoman because, according to him, he saw her first, and according to the laws of second grade crushes, that means that the penguin has the re first rights of refusal to Catwoman. As Cobblepot is flying off 
and Catwoman is scaling the building at at incredible speed. Batman, why does he insist on climbing up a ladder when he knows that he cannot look up because of his cowl? Anthony, can you explain this to me? Because he does this more than once in this movie and it bothers me greatly. I don't totally think we're supposed to acknowledge that he can't look up. I think in the world, he can look up. Okay. But it's like later on when he rips the rubber mask off, Technically, he's ripping a rubber mask off. I think in the world, he's probably pulling a cowl off. We're supposed to imagine it as sort of like a more cloth thing than rubber. Is that the idea? Perhaps. I don't... I can't, I, I don't entirely know how we're supposed to process this suit. I mean, once we, you know, the, the following movie, Sam, remember, there's nipples on this suit. So, there's an implication that it's skin tight, not that Batman created rubber nipples and put them No, heaven forfend someone create rubber nipples to put on their suit. So there's this weird kind of thing that we were kind of supposed to believe about the Batman's in these four movies. <laughs> but yes, he does climb ladders and he cannot look up without moving his entire torso. <laughs> so he's climbing up the ladder and then uh, he gets sucker punched because Catwoman had already scaled the building. And we get our first one-on-one confrontation between Batman and Catwoman. Because she's really the only one of the two villains who is a physical force to be reckoned with. Because she's got zombie strength. She's got whip abilities. He's pretty decent at kicking. She's got some kicks. Was the penguin just has a flamethrower umbrella? Yeah. And a, like a decent set of goons. I think of all of Batman's villains, Joker is not a very good fighter. Penguin's not a very good fighter. Two-Face, not great. 
Riddler not great? Like, until really you get to, I think, Bane in the fourth movie, and that's a train wreck. <laughs> like, Catwoman's like the only. the only physical combatant that gives Batman kind of a run for his money. It seems like, yeah, and I don't. I mean, I haven't seen all the the Christopher Nolan Batman films either, but it kind of seems like it's... Well, that's... uh, I know know it's entirely different, but at the same time, it's like, again, it doesn't seem like a lot of... There were a lot of particularly physically imposing characters in that film like you had you had uh what the sandman in the first film and i can't remember if there other ones because it's been like 15 years since i've seen that movie well i mean yes liam neeson's character Razo was like a physical force. Yeah, but but like uh, Sandman isn't really. He just he uses chemicals to impose his will. Uh, and then oh, uh, Scarecrow. Oh, Scarecrow. Yeah. Scarecrow. Sorry, not Sandman. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Good, 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 good. Yeah. I guess Bane is in the third one. But, like, Joker's in the second one. He's, again, he's not really a physical presence, but he is, I mean, his his physical presence is more based on his, his aura rather than his physical stature and that sort of thing. And a lot of Batman villains, they're not physical threats. It's their goons that are the physical threat. They got something else big This is all to say that for a Tim Burton Batman fight scene, uh, there's actually something going on. And then he punches her in the face and then she <laughs> makes him feel bad. Yeah, he's like, how could you? I'm a woman. And he's like, I'm sorry. And then she just kicks the shit out of him. <laughs> it's like, because <laughs> you said something like, I'm a woman and you shouldn't, uh, like, you shouldn't count me out or whatever it was. She said, I can't remember exactly. Because it's like, She's actually uh, very much capable of kicking the shit out of him at any moment. And then after she stabs him in a weak spot in his whatever we're supposed to think his suit is made of, another bad gadget shows up. <laughs> and he 
man has a napalm grenade. Well, I mean, you know, if the 60s Batman canon established that he has shark propellant spray, I guess he can also have miniature napalm grenades. That's crazy. And she falls off the building into a truck that is apparently open air and carrying cat litter. Perfect timing. I mean, I don't know how cat litter is normally delivered to people, but I didn't realize apparently in Gotham it's delivered in an open air truck. You know what? I'm pretty positive Miss Kitty was behind this. I think <laughs> she probably had a bunch of her cat booze. You know, this kid's kitty litter truck was gonna was going down different streets, but she blocked a bunch of roads, so that kitty litter truck had to go down this road. Yes, yeah. Miss Kitty, I think is doing a lot of work behind the scenes to help Captain. This kitty is the real hero of this movie, is what we're trying to say. Miss Kitty, yes. So we have the the father-son through line, which is the emotional heart of this movie, which is the Shrek family. Mm -hmm. And then the other kind of dynamic duo is Selena Kyle and Miss Kitty. We just don't see Miss Kitty doing as much. Right. She, she's doing all of her work behind the scenes. Yeah. She's gotta earn that milk. Yeah. <laughs> she's not gonna pay rent otherwise, right? She can't pay rent, so she might as well pay it otherwise through other means. I, I want you to set this next part up because I really I was very taken by one element of this team up that we have coming out with Catwoman and Penguin. Okay. So we have a speech from the from Oswald. He's doing like his first sort of bid for mayor speech, talking about you know the the corruption of the mayor and the fact that the city is in chaos because of this crime wave and this gang and everything and. I think after the speech happens, some impressionable young women come up to him and say, you're an incredible inspiration to young people in Gotham everywhere. And he leers at them like the ledge he is. And he, he offers 
to pin a button on one of these girls. You, you don't see it, but he's definitely groping this woman, and she's just sort of like, okay. As he pins the button on her, it's like, uh, really, really not comfortable there. Super smart. Yeah. Yeah. So then we get the first real interaction between Oswald and Catwoman, where she has this idea of teaming up to try and ruin his credibility in some way so that people don't trust Batman anymore. As soon as Penguin walks into the room where Catwoman is sitting, he says, Oh good, I was looking for some pussy. It's like... It's like, that's... That's really stretching the bounds on the PG-13 rating, but, like, that was, that was pretty good. He has a one-track mind in trying to basically bed her, and she's not rebuking his advances, but she's also not definitely saying no. Yeah, she, she's definitely playing coy. She knows that uh, he's trying to ignore the fact that he's a disgusting monster because uh, she wants to use his resources. Exactly. So, it gets to a point where he basically seems to be uninterested in teaming up with her. They're sort of facing each other. There's like a birdcage between them. And Catwoman opens the cage very slowly, grabs the bird, <laughs> and then stuffs it in her mouth. <laughs> Sam, this was a practical stunt. Was it really? Yeah. They weren't doing CG. This was Michelle Pfeiffer literally put this bird in her mouth for several seconds for this scene. There's a quote of Michelle Pfeiffer saying, I look back and say, what was I thinking? I could have gotten a disease or something from having a live bird in my mouth. It seemed fine at the time. I don't think the bird was <laughs> drugged or anything. We did that scene in 
one take. I I would hope so. Pfeiffer literally put that bird in her mouth for that scene. I love her. Wow. That is dedication to your craft. I will say that. <laughs> but then, of course, Penguin threatens Miss Kitty, who's unaffected because, you know, he's got the knife against Miss Kitty. If Catwoman hadn't have intervened, Miss Kitty would have been fine. Oh, she yeah. would have gotten out of that situation, no question, but, So, Catwoman spits out the bird. Bird's fine. And I guess they decide to go ahead and work together. Anyway, despite the fact that they were... They've resolved nothing. In this impasse, <laughs> like nothing has been resolved, but apparently now they're fine with working together because they've threatened each other's pets. It works out. Yeah. It totally does. Enemy of my enemy. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. Then we end this scene with Catwoman giving herself a bath by licking her arm and then, you know, combing her head like a, like an actual cat. But she's, she's licking this latex bodysuit. <laughs> it was like, again, dedication to the craft. Oh, Selena, your poor, fragile, fragile body. <laughs> and I guess the next part we have is Bruce and Selena just randomly meeting out in the open world, I think, right? There's a brief moment at Wayne Manor. It shows up in Alfred Throws Shade. <laughs> Where something's on the news. And Alfred says, Change the channel. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Bruce is watching the Oswald press conference and then Alfred says, can we change it to something else? Like, like love connection? Something with more dignity. But yes, sir, I just, the only reason that was important is because Alfred threw, threw some shade. <laughs> Yes, the next scene is that Selena and Bruce meet on the street. This is their all, you know, they have some banter that leads up to them agreeing to have a uh, 
a short date. You know, there's some back and forth about like, oh, I'm busy, I'm busy, oh, freaking do it early, then, you know, we can have a date. What stands out about this scene is while they're walking, there's all these fantastic newspapers <laughs> in the background with headlines, and the headlines... <laughs> there's, there's three headlines. One of them says, Batman blows it. <laughs> Another one says, me out. <laughs> and then the last one says, it's a catastrophe. <laughs> and Bruce Wayne is distracted for a moment when he sees the Batman blows it. saying Catwoman weighs 140 pounds? What are you guys looking at? Yeah, this is the beginning of the setup of me as a moment in this next scene of just showing how similar these two are and why why I love them so much more than Bruce Wayne with Becky Vale. And I just, oh, oh what could have happened? <laughs> if, I'm, if I'm not mistaken, they agreed to have this date and then pretty much cut to the, the date, am I right? We have this very important part, actually, that's between them. Because the, the press conference that Cobblepot was holding, that Wayne was watching, was where Cobblepot was basically calling out the mayor to relight the Christmas tree. And he was saying something like, he hopes that Batman will be there to keep the peace. The scene between when Bruce invites Selina over to dinner and the actual dinner is the scene where the Ice Princess is like getting ready to be the person to relight the, the Christmas tree. And Cobblepot shows up out of nowhere, proclaims himself to be a talent scout. One of my favorite scenes in the movie is Darla the Poodle is there with her 
person, and the dog is still holding the battering in its mouth. And there's this scene where Oswald's like trying to pull the the battering away from the dog, and the dog's like, "No, it's mine." <laughs> It's like, I love that moment. Oswald just randomly yells, say cheese. And so she does. She stands up, yells cheese, and then he hucks the battering at her and apparently knocks her unconscious or something. And now we get the dinner scene. Which is juxtaposed so well because, you know, last time we had a romantic dinner scene at Wade Manor, Alfred was just fussing about <laughs> and, like, really doing his best to make sure Bruce Wayne was on his best behavior. And, you know, as we get further in this movie, it's very apparent that Alfred does not think Stuart Kyle's appropriate for Bruce Wayne. That said, this was one of my favorite scenes in the entire movie. <laughs> I just think their banter back and forth was really good. There's just a lot more direct chemistry going on because the, the characters have a lot more in common. First of all, the whole conversation is kind of dancing around their difficulty with duality. And then just because of who Selena is at this point in her character arc, she just goes for it. She pounces on him. Yeah, she just face tackles him. It's <laughs> just making out hard until we get that comical scene where he's like, pushing up her shirt and is about to touch where her napalm burn was and he tries to, she tries to stop him and she's kind of like pushed up his shirt and almost gets to where she's stabbed. He tries to stop her. Ultimately, it's the fact that the news they end up hearing, they end up hearing about the, uh, the ice queen gets kidnapped, right? That's on the news? Apparently she's been kidnapped. This is like the third scene that Commissioner Gordon is in, and I don't think he appears for the rest no. of the movie. Because he announces that the ice 
princess has been kidnapped and they found a batarang covered in blood at the scene. They don't necessarily think that it was Batman that did this. Well, Commissioner Gordon definitely doesn't think that. But everyone else does think that it's Batman who did this. And then, of course, Bruce Wayne gets up, and they're both, like, sort of flailing to, like, get their coats and everything. And well, leave. this is another playoff of the last movie, so last time, Wayne had to leave and have Alfred give an excuse to Vicky. And so this time, you know, Wayne's flailing, he's like, I need you to Alfred just, you know, tell her this or tell her that or don't tell her this. And Alfred's like, I, I got it, Master Wayne, I'll deal with it. <laughs> and then we go back to Selena, and Selena's doing the exact same thing. Yeah. And. She's trying to think of excuses, and it's wonderful, and she, and she <laughs> has this line where she's like, I don't know, just, uh, make a fucking dirty limerick or something to tell him, and Alfred goes, one has just sprung to mind, Adam. Not Alfred Shade, but Alfred killing it. Like, she asks him to think of a dirty limerick, but she also says, write him like a sonnet or yes. something. It's like, he's, he's not actually Shakespeare. Like, he's English, but for God's sake. Oh, Alfred pull off a sonnet at a moment's notice if he needed to. Oh, definitely. <laughs> but honestly, I think this was this was my favorite scene was just Bruce like running up to Alfred and saying like just just tell her that there's like a a, a business deal went through or, or or, or fell through, or I have to, I have to get, I have to go, and Alfred's like, I'll handle it, and then he walks to Selena, and Selena is immediately like, look, I, I have to just tell, tell Bruce that, like, um, that, that something came up, and I, I don't, I have to go feed my cat, or <laughs> they're just, they're both like panicking like teenagers and it's like, it's adorable and I love that scene. Before we move on from it too, we do get some acknowledgement that Vicky Vale is out of the picture and the implication is that we know as an audience is that the way Bruce phrases it, uh, she just couldn't 
to the fact that Bruce was living two lives. Although he did try to remove the implication that he was a serial killer because he said, I'm not like Norman Bates or Ted Bundy. I didn't like kill her. It's just she couldn't deal with the duality of my of my nature. Yeah, I'm really into weirdos. I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> As they're both like you know, speeding to the scene because they both have a reason to be there. We get this again, this wonderful juxtaposition of these two characters where we have this working girl who's changing, she's got one outfit, she's changing in her car on her way to the scene. And then we come to fancy pants, high maintenance Bruce Wayne <laughs> as he goes into his room with like 16 suits and he specifically moves like six suits aside because tonight I want to wear my fifth Batman suit. This is the one I want to wear this evening. <laughs> and he picks his favorite pair of boots, like the second on the left. <laughs> Getting ready to go out be crazy animal people on the town. It's fantastic. So. They're at the tree lighting ceremony and the mayor's trying to say that he and the police have the situation in hand uh, when they clearly do not. No, because if Batman's not there, the commissioner is a wreck. <laughs> He could not be expected to be doing his job without that. He's probably spending most of his time trying to make sure everyone knows that Batman is innocent. That's probably what the commissioner is spending his time on. Yeah, rather than trying to control the the gang violence that's enveloping the city. Batman's out on the prowl. He finds the the ice princess who's tied up in some warehouse somewhere. He leaves the car. Well, Batman pulls up and we get a Batmobile gadget mode activated is the armor covering. So the armor covering we did see in the previous movie when he blew up a warehouse full of human beings. <laughs> so the circus freaks know how to deal with that. We've seen their schematics. 
because while Batman is going off to do the whole next scene we're talking about, they're hacking into the Batmobile, causing some future pain. Yeah, it's sort of like interspersing scenes of of the gang hacking into the car and like planting a bug uh, with Batman saving this ice princess and then Catwoman appearing and kidnapping the ice princess and we get our second scene of Batman having to trust climb a ladder <laughs> when he can't look up. Catwoman's disappeared at the top of this building, but the Ice Princess is sort of like precariously standing at the edge of the building or like on a scaffold or something. I couldn't quite tell exactly what was happening there. Yeah, she seemed left to her own devices too. Like Catwoman brought her to the roof and then bounced. So she has no reason to be standing precariously on the edge of the skyscraper. She's just hanging there. Yeah. Uh, and then the penguin just sort of appears out of nowhere, yells, Lawn dart! And chucks this thing in between them. Well, he's the penguin, so what he throws is another umbrella, but apparently kept within this umbrella with some bats so that when it opens bats... Anthony, it's not some bats, it's hundreds of bats. It's, it's a swarm. It's a metric shit ton of It bats. is so many bats. <laughs> it does not... It defies the laws of physics. How many bats could have been contained in that? There's now tons of bats everywhere. The ice princesses fall in and... Batman is looking over the edge, and from hundreds of stories <laughs> down, people on the street go, It's Batman! He just pushed her <laughs> I don't know how they spot him. They're, they must have impeccable eyesight. I mean, they're... They're dumb, but they have the best eye care you could possibly ask for in Gotham, apparently. But this was, of course, the plan all along, which is to frame Batman. Yeah. The Ice Princess falls to her death, but she lands on the plunger thing, so she lights the Christmas tree again. 
Yeah, she's great at her job. Yeah. Batman, he ends up having another altercation with Catwoman. But this time it's less of a fight, more of a, um, he gets straddled by her as they have banter about mistletoe and then she licks him kind of situation. Really, that's only important to bring up because the mistletoe ends up being significant later on. And then uh, we have another bad gadget <laughs> introduce the hang glider as he hang glides away from the situation. <laughs> Which I think then sets us up for the last real interaction between Catwoman and Penguin, right? Yes. Because they seem to want to celebrate the fact that they have ruined Batman's credibility. So they celebrate with a little bit of champagne. And worth noting that Catwoman did not intend for the Ice Princess to get killed. That was not her intent. So, she does not seem particularly happy about that, and Cobblepot is, again, one-track mind. He's saying something like, there's a bed at the mayor's manor, and he basically just wants to go back and, and plow. And Catwoman's like, I wouldn't touch you if I was trying to scratch you. And then Penguin immediately turns on her and screams at her for not wanting to have sex with him. This deranged sewer mutant. Which, you know, he like straps her to his umbrella copter and she just sort of flies off as he, you know, he waves goodbye. And I'm not sure if if she like detaches it herself or if it auto detaches. I couldn't quite tell. Or maybe it was too difficult for her to hold on to. For all intents and purposes, the penguin drops her. This is now the third time Selena Kyle has been shoved or dropped from a great height by one of the leading men movie. <laughs> Max Shrek pushes her out of a window to an alley grave. Batman 
napalm grenades her off the skyscraper into a kitty litter grave. And the penguin umbrella copter drops her into a greenhouse grave. <laughs> Poor Selena Kyle. I know. It's not explicit at this point about, you know, that she has nine lives, but she's now used of three lives. <laughs> <laughs> and so I guess Batman's figured, well, I did my best. Another person has died under my watch. I'm gonna go home and rest. So he gets in the Batmobile, but he can't control it because the penguin has jumped over to some sort of console command and Penguin now controls the Batmobile because <laughs> he appears on the screen and he, he's like taunting Batman as he's driving through crowds of people that I guess have followed Batman because they saw where he was going after he supposedly pushed the Ice Princess off of the building. They think He's, he's a murderer, he's gonna, you know, they need to stop him, so, because the penguin has control of the car, he just goes ahead and drives through this crowd of people for a while. There's so many people die. It's like a multiple minute long scene where Cobblepot's just like taunting Batman as Batman's trying to find whatever the source of whatever is causing his car to be uncontrollable. And it's just like so many people are getting run over and killed here. It's like, good lord. <laughs> but after multiple minutes of driving over people and committing vehicular homicide, Batman does manage to remove the bug and stop right before he runs over an old woman. Oh yeah, that's one of the Batmobile gadgets that I've run down. Really? Really excellent breaks. <laughs> he stops on a dime. There's actually two Batmobile gadgets in this scene. One, the amazing brake system, which we need to really underline this. He basically is in a rocket-propelled vehicle. <laughs> so the fact that he brakes that quickly is 
is definitely a Batmobile feature. The other thing is when the cops are chasing him and he's approaching an alleyway, he is able to eject the sides of his vehicle <laughs> so that he is not as wide and he goes into what I have called tube mode <laughs> and is able to narrowly fit between an alleyway. This, I believe, they do a riff on this in Batman Forever where a Batmobile grappling hook, a gadget from the third movie, shoots up and he's able to go up the side of a building. Oh yeah! This is the, pre- the precursor to that. Because mm. it's like, how do we up the ante? <laughs> he already went that he already did a Batmobile tube. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, when they're doing the Batmobile tube, you're losing part of the Batmobile. If you're using the grappling hook, you at least keep the entirety of the Batmobile, right? Yeah, he learned his lesson. Yeah. That's, that's why... Yeah, so I built that. <laughs> and he escapes, uh, you know, there's a three-car cop pile-up behind him, but he escapes the scene. That one's on him. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> he definitely killed, like, six cops there, too. Because <laughs> they all just crash into each other and blow up. Yeah, you know, despite this whole scene that happens next where Cobblepot is revealed for who he is, there is no way Batman comes back public eye after the sheer amount of <laughs> Even if you haven't insane amount of evidence. You just, there's no way yeah. of convincing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, uh, Pat Angle's super psyched to see him when Two-Face comes around in the next movie, so. Because he knows what's up. He escapes. And we move on to another speech that Cobblepot is giving in front of Gotham City's most gullible uh, citizens. Or again, he's bad-mouthing the mayor and saying, look what he let happen to this city. There's chaos, there's crime, there's gangs, and Batman is also destroying the city and killing people. Bruce Wayne and Alfred are watching this on TV, and they're going to go down to their 
Hacking Central Station. And Bruce is like, Alfred, you coming with me? And Alfred's like, I'll take the stairs. Because Bruce is taking a giant adult kitty slide tube thing down to this hacking room. And he has to enter through like a torture device. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And Alfred's like, I'm good. It's important to point out, Sam, that Alfred gets there just as quickly by taking the stairs. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just like, Alfred's just no nonsense. He just walks in, immediately sits down, puts on these headphones, and is like, I'm doing this shit. Like, Alfred is a master hacker. <laughs> there is a rare moment, while this scene does still go to Alfred, there is a rare moment of Bruce Wayne throws some shade, where they're talking about security. Oh, yeah. Bruce Wayne goes, like, you want to talk about security? Who's the one who let Vicky Vale into the Batcave, Alfred? <laughs> Bruce Wayne throwing some shade. It was his turn. It's fair. He gets one. Everybody gets one. <laughs> Everybody gets one. Bruce Wayne gets one. <laughs> they somehow managed to hack the microphone that Cobblepot is speaking into and I guess they had recorded whatever dialogue he was yelling as he had hacked the Batmobile they recorded you know him basically disparaging the citizens of Gotham. He played them like a harp from hell, I think was his, uh, his line. Yeah, that sounds right. Unlike the soon-to-be ex-president Orange 45, the citizens immediately turn on him because he has disparaged them and they throw eggs and tomatoes at him because apparently people just bring those to speeches. Oh yeah, I do. <laughs> I don't blame you. <laughs> yeah, I love that they hack the quote-unquote frequency. They jam the frequency. And they play this over the speech. And you know, the penguin probably could have come back from this. It's just a couple remarks. But it so flusters the penguin that he just turns on his umbrella gun and starts shooting at the audience. Yeah. 
the, the man has no filter and he has like no he has no in between he is on or off so yeah he just he just starts murdering people all over the place and then he runs away and uh dives back into that same river that his parents dropped him in 33 or possibly 34 years ago at this point. Yeah, so it's his, uh, it's his rebirth because he became Oswald Cobblepot while he was running for mayor. Mm-hmm. Now he's reborn again as the penguin and getting back to the business that he had that he intended to from the start. Mm-hmm. Oh, that was one of the other moments was Shrek was there too. I forgot he was there because I was wondering what happened to Shrek? He hasn't been here in like 20 minutes and then suddenly he shows up for this scene and um, then Shrek realizes like oh we're done here he's not going to be mayor so he just sort of shrugs at Cobblepot and then pieces out so that part's done and we know that it'll come back later where Penguin wants to get his revenge on Shrek for abandoning him. But we finally find out what his big plan was all along and why he was at the Hall of Records and taking all this information is because tonight is supposed to be this big Max Carade Ball that was held was given off by Max by Shrek and the plan is like all of the Gotham City elite will be there so Penguin's great plan is is going to kidnap all of the firstborn sons of all of these people and throw them in toxic sludge and kill them. (laughs) And one clown has an issue with this. Yeah, it's like, uh, don't you think I think his line was, don't you think this is a little... And then he stops talking, and then Penguin kills him and says, No, I think it's a lot. The only piece of the sentence you're missing, Sam, is, Don't you think killing sleeping children... Oh, right. Isn't that a little... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> kind of important. 
detail I've forgotten about. Which yeah. could be even a meta comment about whether or not this is appropriate for, me, <laughs> for the PG-13 audience. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So he kills that guy. And we're back at Wayne Manor, and Alfred is asking Bruce about wanting to go to the the masquerade ball. Should we just RSVP in the negative? And Bruce says, yeah, sure. And Alfred starts to tear up the response. And then Bruce is like, wait, Selena might be there. And Alfred just gives him this look. That's the final shade that Alfred <laughs> throws in this movie. Because he's already ripped it up. Yeah, exactly. And you know, decorum, you know, even though Alfred hates Shrek, mm-hmm. you know, he probably has to now very carefully piece this invite back together so that Bruce can take it with him. You don't show a ripped up invite, so he probably now has to painstakingly <laughs> glue it back together. We already know that Alfred probably doesn't approve Selena Kyle. So, you know, it's not a comment, but that look that Alfred gives, that's the final Alfred Shane moment that Batman returns, and it's on point. So now we're at the Masquerade Ball and they are playing a jazzy version of Super Freak, which seems very appropriate (laughs) to this scene. Bruce Wayne sort of walking around, Shrek just sort of appears behind him. They banter for a bit. Shrek is mostly unflappable. I think he literally says gone. Yeah, he does. Yeah, because Bruce is like trying to be sort of threatening, and Max is like, whatever, bitch. And just leaves. (laughs) Fucking Max. And then we get the dancing scene between Selena and Bruce with the, this is the original song that I guess Danny Elfman wrote for this movie, right? Yes, face to face. Well, he wrote it with, I think, some UK band. The lyrics... My God, I wish... (laughs) I 
wish I had written some down. The song. The lyrics are so bad. <laughs> <laughs> Because it's, you know, it's playing over this whole scene where, you know, Selena Kyle and Bruce Wayne are having, well, let's just discuss this scene and then, you know, kind of put some context to this song. So, they're kind of back to discussing their shared sort of duality talking about not hiding behind masks and all that sort of thing. This is also where the no hard feelings that Bruce says about how their last date abruptly ended. Oh yeah. And they're dancing close together Selena says, hmm, semi-hard, <laughs> I'd say. Uh, Sorry, I just had to no, go ahead. Uh, that's okay. They're just sort of discussing the sort of the duality of their own natures and whether or not they want to continue wearing masks and that sort of thing. I don't think either of them necessarily realized that they were talking both figuratively and literally, but it gets to a point where, like, they kiss, and then I think Bruce looks up, and they're apparently standing on her mistletoe. And this line from earlier where Catwoman was straddling Batman and saying something about, you know, uh, mistletoe is poisonous. And I think it was... She says that, and then he repeats the line that she said to him earlier about a kiss could be just as deadly. And then they both have that realization that, oh shit, we're actually supposed to be more enemies. Yeah, and all, oh, and Selene has a wonderful line, and it's just Michelle's Piper's delivery of it, where she just looks distraught, she, and she holds him tight, she says, does this mean we have to start fighting? Yeah. If this movie was made today, I think it could probably be about a half hour longer. Mm-hmm. And I think the couple posture line, I think, gets enough. But just 
a little bit more of Selena and Bruce, I think, would have been super interesting. Because it's, it's kind of a tragic moment. It all yeah. hinges on how she delivers it and if there was more interaction between those two, I think it would, it would hit a little harder. Yeah, because there was also a point in this scene where she asks him why did he come to the to the ball? And he says, for you. And then he asks her, why did you come to the ball? And she says, for Max. And Bruce is thinking, oh, see, so you, you're with Max. You're not, you're not here for me. And she gives this like great laugh she's like oh no I'm not here to be with Max and then she pulls this little gun out of her out of her boot and she says no I'm here to kill him basically and like he's trying to talk her out of it I think yeah cause she's just so broken at this point but we never actually get any sort of resolution to that because suddenly a duck explodes out of the floor and we get our third Wilhelm scream of the film. Yes! <laughs> so good. Yeah. And, uh... People are sort of like dusting themselves off and Max and Chip are there just trying to make sure the other each other's fine and the penguin appears in his duckmobile, reveals his plan to all of the Gotham socialites and then leaves. Well, he's trying to take Chip. Right, yes, like, yes. Because Chip is the firstborn son. Right. But because Max loves Chip so much, Max talks Penguin out of taking Chip and sacrifices himself instead. I think Max actually says, if you have one iota of humanity, you'll take me instead. And Penguin says, well, I don't, so no. But he still manages to convince Penguin otherwise, just saying, you know, I'm the one who abandoned you earlier. I'm the one who betrayed you. I'm the one who you want revenge against, not my son. Then that convinces Penguin to go ahead and take Max instead of Chip. 
Father of the Year, Sam. Mm-hmm. Father of the Year, Max Shrek. Definitely. He's the true hero of this film. He and Miss Kitty are the true heroes of this film. Uh, so they leave, and I think Bruce and Selena both kind of bolt. Like, they leave while everyone else is standing dumbstruck at the penguin hearing him talk about his master plan and the next scene is where we're we're seeing some of the gang like taking the kids and loading them into a truck oh my god yeah i wrote this down this is my favorite line of the movie was would you hurry up and get these kids in? It's loaded in already. It's like, oh god. Because <laughs> you see them putting, I mean, you know, harkens back to Penguin's childhood. You see them just like putting children into these little cages. <laughs> I'm gonna make it that fantastic Batman silhouette. He jumps in front of the organ cracker guy, and we don't see it because there's a big action scene to follow, so they don't waste their time on him beating up goons. But the implication is that he stops them. Actually, not just implication, it's explicit. Because one of my Batman gadgets, Batman gadget, <laughs> is bat stationary. Uh, on some bat stationary, he writes a note that gets delivered to the penguin. By the the monkey, the organ grinder's monkey is the only survivor of this encounter. He's like, I foiled your plan. Yeah, he's. It's like the kids couldn't come to your party. Sorry, signed Batman. One more gadget off the list. We only have three left. (laughs) So, this is when Penguin goes completely unhinged, and he has changed his plan to, instead of stealing all of stealing the firstborn sons, he's just gonna kill everyone by sending his penguin army up to the surface to just cause a massive explosion like he's strapping rockets to penguins (laughs) just so they'll all blow up and kill everyone in Gotham like he doesn't care anymore (laughs) 
this is because we haven't totally got into this yet, and it's it's a good time to bring it up because you know he's standing in his underground amphitheater and he's addressing hundreds of penguins. Mm-hmm. And we mentioned it earlier, but these penguins were pretty well treated. Yeah. Because, you know, there were issues when, when some animal rights activists found out that real-life penguins were going to have fake rockets strapped to them. They had to address this. And I think, is it DeVito? He had, he had some quotes saying, like, uh, I'm the kind of guy that likes being on set, but he was cold as shit because <laughs> we had real penguins and they had to keep the water really cold. There are these massive air conditioners. <laughs> I was the only one comfortable because I had pounds of prosthetics and body padding. <laughs> but Michelle Pfeiffer hated it because she had nothing. Yeah. And so, like, the places were just super cold. And there was like several different types of penguins. There's the emperor penguins, which was provided by Birdland, which is like a bird sanctuary out of the UK. And I think one of like the oldest penguins in captivity, Seth, was one of the stars <laughs> of, uh, of Batman Returns, mm-hmm. and uh, Christopher Walken has said that the big ones, the emperors, were like very sweet, and you're almost cat-like, you could pet them. And uh, the middle ones were a little bit more active. And then the little guys were, I guess, just assholes. They would just peck everybody. (laughs) (laughs) So you had these kind of like three different sizes of actual penguins. And then kind of scattered throughout the really big penguins for little people costumes which we see towards the end as the Paul Barrel appears. There was more than that, right? Like there were robotic penguins and CGI penguins and I think there might have been like some puppets also it's like the number of actual penguins in this scene is like 30 yeah but it looks like there are hundreds there's just so many but it's mostly like robots and CGI but 
because it's... I want no. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, go ahead. I was just saying because, um, because it's shot from a particular angle where it's, it's far enough away that you can't necessarily tell that most of those are not actual penguins. Yeah, it's just, it's just so many. It's just so many. Yeah. It's, it's, it's insane to me. The only part I have written down is all bold seven exclamation points. It's just penguin army. I was very excited when this scene came up. This was the part I remember most as a little boy. He apparently just straps a bunch of rockets to his penguin army and he sends them off to stand in Gotham Square because I guess that's the best place to blow up. It's like they're one set band also. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And I guess Batman had uh, he had intel he probably uh, got that intel from some of the gangsters or something I would imagine uh, about like a backup plan so he and Alfred have devised this plan of what they're going to do with the penguins because they obviously don't want the Gotham Square to be blown up. So what they're going to do is somehow lure the penguins back into the sewers. They hacked them. They hacked the frequency, remember? Right. They all the, all the penguins have those little metal hats on. The right. Hats. Yeah, because they that's how they were controlling them. Mm-hmm. So just like they hacked the uh, frequency earlier in the movie, they they're really good at hacking frequencies. It's really good. Yeah, specifically Alfred is who's the one who's hacking all of this stuff. Yeah. So, Penguin and his gang are watching his Penguin army go up to the Gotham Square and with like five seconds left before this. They hack the signal. Alfred hacks the signal. The penguins start moving back down to the way they came to the sewers. And they don't blow up all the penguins. It gets to a point where, like, the gang is starting to abandon the penguin. Like, they know... Oh, the jig yeah. is up. 
They also have on radar that something fast is moving through the tunnels towards them, which is, of course, the bad move. So all of this red triangle gang just basically bounces leave. Which I mean, I would too at this point. Like, it's a lost cause. There's this great scene, there's this small moment where Batman's in the tunnels and he does this great, like, where shifts the, uh, the boat uh, upside down in the tunnel to dodge these missiles that the penguins are shooting at him. The camera lingers on Batman's face for a second where he has, like, the tiniest roll of his eyes <laughs> after he dodges missiles shot at him from the back of penguins. Just like, I interpret this as just Bruce Wayne going like, what is my life? How did I get here? Is this sudden existential moment where he's like, how did they get to the point where I have to dodge a missile being shot at me from by a penguin? And then moments later, he shoots his, his bat boat out from the sewers to land in an old abandoned zoo. To face a penguin man who just got out of a giant ducky, who then comes at him with a blade umbrella. <laughs> Just kind of finally 
showing up at the zoo. Penguin gets a hold of the uh, big red button gadget, and uh, I don't entirely get what the thinking is here, like what Batman was thinking. Because, you know, once the button's pressed, all the missiles are just blowing up everything. Like, right there. I think Penguin at this point is kind of like... Again, I hate to keep bringing this up, but he's basically like the soon-to-be ex-president Orange 45 now where he's basically just given up any hope of ever saving any semblance of a career that he has. So he's just trying to destroy as much as he can before he gets killed. Yeah, he's just gonna press the big red bad one. Yeah. I think Batman releases his Bat-Boat gadget, which releases a bunch of bats out, and the penguin kind of disappears in the explosions for a little bit. He's not gone. We see him again a little later, but we kind of, like, we lose him for a second, right? Well, he, like, he falls back into the sewers and like the toxic sludge from earlier. Right, 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 right. Like he definitely crashes through something. Uh, like some yeah. floorboards or some glass or something. And then lands in this toxic waste. So he's presumed gone because no one should be able to survive that at all. We forgot to mention that uh, Shrek got kidnapped some time yeah. ago. <laughs> He's being held captive, but he basically was able to finally get out because he convinced the monkey to give him the keys to let him out of his own cage. Yeah, since the Max Raid is there, yeah. uh, it's just been in a cage in, uh, underground. And uh, this is when Catwoman shows up. She wants to kill Shrek uh, for obvious reasons. And Batman is trying to convince her that no, don't kill him, even though he's killed multiple people in the course of this film. He wants to send Shrek to jail. Yeah, exactly. Let the let the cops do their job. Let the let the process happen. It's like, no, just just really want to kill him. He reveals himself to be Bruce Wayne. He rips the mask off. He rips the cowl off. 
Did you catch the makeup thing here, Sam? No, what happened? So take a look at this. At your convenience. The cutouts around Batman's eyes are a little big. So there's always black makeup around his eyes. He shot just before they cut back to him during Catwoman and Batman's conversation with Max in the background before Batman rips his mask off. You see there's no makeup around his eyes. It's very apparent, but it's super brief. It's the tiniest thing. Hmm. But it's just one of those little technical details since yeah, he was ripping that mask off in the moment. They didn't want big black rings around his eyes when the mask came off. I think it ruined the immersion. Yeah. So, he reveals himself to be Batman, which I think she already knew, you know, from earlier in the, the Max Carade Ball. He's trying to convince her not to kill Shrek, but he, he calls her Selena, which apparently that surprises Shrek because he didn't realize that Catwoman was Selena. So he fires her. Finally, it's taken long enough. Finally, fires her. And then, my second favorite line in the movie is he's looking at Bruce Wayne and it's like, Bruce Wayne, why are you dressed up like Batman? <laughs> it's just such a silly moment because it's like after all this stuff, it's like he didn't even think to the, the possibility of Bruce Wayne being Batman. It's just like, why are you dressed up like Batman? Unflappable. So, Selena calls him a moron, and then um, Shrek... Shoots Batman, I think, first, right? Yeah, because it puts him on the ground so that he can have this final dynamic with Selena. And she's giving this speech where she's like, she says, You've killed me. Penguins killed me. Batman's killed me but I still have six lives left. And Shrek's like, okay, and then he shoots her twice. <laughs> but because she's a zombie, she's totally fine <laughs> and tries to attack him. 
and he shoots her two more times. And she's just like, she's like narrating this at the same time. It's like, four, five lives. And he shoots her twice more, and she says, six, seven, two more lives left. I think I'll keep one more for next Christmas. She's like, Whipping him this whole time. It's like, Jesus Christ. She is a zombie. It's terrifying. It's it's the same actually now that I think about this, it has like the same feel as I don't hate to keep referring back to Princess Bride, but have you seen that? Oh, yeah, plenty of times. Okay. The scene where the six-fingered man stabs Inigo Montoya, and we think, oh, Inigo's dead. Spoiler alert, unless you've listened to this the podcast already, the episode on that. And then it's like, Inigo isn't dead. Like, he's, he's a zombie, because... He pulls out his sword and continues to attack the six-fingered man and just, like, yelling at him, My name is Nigo Montoya, you killed my father, prepare to die, over and over again. It's like, is a terrifying scene. It's like, it's such a, it's such like a gritty, like, emotional scene there. It's like, it, this was, this kind of harkened back to that, where it's like, she's announcing how many times they've killed her, and it's like, she's still not dead yet. It's, it's just, it's creepy, and it's amazing. Just seeing that happen. Oh, yeah. And you know her costume's all ripped and her hair's all coming out so she looks kind of like her friend as well. There's definitely some horror element going on to her at this moment. Mm-hmm. I don't remember exactly what happens next, well, then she pulls the taser out. Right. Yes. It's like it causes an explosion because she, she, like, zaps Shrek. But it, like, fries the both of them, it looks like. Well, I mean, she's all in on this. So that's because, you know, at this point, this... Is going to be her eighth life since we're accepting that she's got nine magic lives. She's not just tasing him, she's going in and putting a taser between the French kiss she's about to give him as she holds a power line up 
above their heads and just creates this like huge electrical explosion. And you know, the next we see Batman gets up and he moves the debris aside and there's a comically crispy fried Max Shrek underneath <laughs> all the debris. But Catwoman is nowhere to be seen at this point. Which leads us to the final penguin scene. So... This part with the face taze brings up something mentioned earlier. You referenced Max Shrek was invented to take the place of Harvey Dent. Well, Sam Ham actually meant for Dent Billy D. Williams from the 
before I kill you. I just need a drink of ice-cold water. He just collapses because of the heat. Oh, he does attempt to, to harm him because he pulls one final umbrella. It's very clear he thinks it's going to be a gun. And when he opens it, it's just a, a bunch of dangling little kitty toys. Yeah. All around the umbrella. So it's just this cute little one. And as you said, he's just face first. Mm-hmm. And then the, the six gigantic emperor penguins carry him down into the water to his death, basically. Yeah. And I'm not gonna lie, got a little misty-eyed at that point. It's like, you know, these are the last, probably the last penguins for him. They're probably the ones that have been around the longest, and they've lost their leader. They're definitely the most well-fed. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So they, they sort of carry him off, which is also pretty impressive considering the relative strength of penguins, I would imagine, is not particularly great. So the fact that they were able to, to carry his corpse into the water and just sort of give him a, a viking funeral is, is pretty nice. Those little flipper arms yeah, and exactly. no digits, no exactly. less. Like, I don't even know how that works, but it does apparently. And then we're, we're back to Alfred driving Bruce home, I guess, after a really long day. Bruce is probably real tuckered out. He needs a, needs a nice snack. There's but... another one of those kind of time jumps, right? So we're kind of roughly this all kicking over a couple weeks. Yeah. I love this again in comparison to the last movie. Because the last movie ends with Vicky Vale getting in the car with Alfred, driving away, and then we pan up and Batman is dramatically standing on a rooftop. Mm -hmm. In this movie, which for the time is, you know, I think doing its best for what society was to kind of make some more feminist statements, we have uh, 
Batman asks the car to be pulled over because he sees what looks like the silhouette of Catwoman. And he goes to the alley and he finds Miss Kitty. Yeah. And she's just hanging out there and he picks her up and takes the kitty, goes back to the car and has a brief little exchange with Alfred where they wish each other Merry Christmas and Bruce Wayne's final line is goodwill towards men and women and then the camera pans up and we see the bass signal and then Catwoman's silhouette pops into frame. Batman music comes and we cut. Actually, originally, they, uh, I think, had intended for Catwoman to be dead, but there was talks about making a cat spin-off that Michelle Pfeiffer was on board for and Tim Burton was going to do, but after the reception and the fact that it, this man, Batman didn't make as much money as the previous Batman, they kept getting pushed off. Eventually, Tim Burton got offered the third movie, but he didn't really want to do it. And they didn't really want him to do it. They wanted something that would sell more toys. And uh, so the Catwoman movie just kept getting kicked down the pipeline, kicked down the pipeline, kicked down the pipeline until we got what. Uh, how the Barry started. <laughs> but uh, that's actually also why they kind of doubled down on her having nine lives movie, which was not really an intention at the beginning until they kind of decided upon the fact that they wanted to make a standalone Catwoman movie. Hmm. Could you imagine if we got that Michelle Pfeiffer for Catwoman movie? That might have been cool. That would have been fantastic. Yeah. Like, I haven't seen the Halle Berry Catwoman movie, but I've heard Nothing but bad things about it. It's so bad. <laughs> I can't even. I can't even. <laughs> yeah, I. I would have been very interested to see a Michelle Pfeiffer. Catwoman film, a spin-off or standalone film. 
Well, we did it. That was your fifth Batman movie. How did you feel overall? I got the impression you liked it. Yeah, uh, the the first time I watched it, I think the issue was that I was taking notes so often that I wasn't really paying very close attention to what was going on. So it didn't really stick out too much to me. But when I watched it again today, just for the sake of watching it and just sort of seeing what I might have missed detail-wise, I realized that it is actually... I think it might be the best of the films that I've seen of the Batman films. It feels like there's just so much care and so much detail put into these characters and just the difference, the dichotomy between the Penguin and Catwoman and just having, again, like you you don't have a lot of particularly strong female characters, especially in the early 90s in these sort of movies. So having a character who admittedly is a bit deranged and also probably a zombie is... It's, it's not the best quality, but just the fact that, you know, we have a, a female character who is not taking any shit from any men at this point. Like, I approve of that. The cast of characters is impeccable to me. Danny DeVito is perfect as the Penguin. Michelle Pfeiffer is perfect as, as Catwoman. Christopher Walken is Christopher Walken being Christopher Walken. And the guy who's playing his son is perfect at being a caricature of Christopher Walken. I appreciate the fact that they didn't, like, go super overboard with Batman. Like you said earlier about Michael Keaton wanting to take some of the dialogue out because he wanted the focus to be more on other characters. I think that was a smart decision. I would have liked more Alfred. But that's just me. Oh, yeah. Because he was just incredible. Yeah. <laughs> like, he, he had less screen time, I think, than 1989 Batman. But he packed in so much more sass. Since I failed as a matinee manatee, 
through the first two Batman endeavors, I really am going to double down on making sure that I get all the Batman shade. <laughs> I'm sorry, all the Alfred shade when we watch Batman and Robin. Nice. I uh, have a lot to make up for. I apologize. <laughs> So, yeah, I think this this is probably my favorite out of the five I've seen. If I had to rank them, I know we didn't ask about that, but I'd probably put this at number one. Maybe 1989 at number two. Dark Knight at number three. Batman Begins at 4, and quite honestly, Batman Forever has tumbled significantly down in a very distant fifth. I could not be happier <laughs> to be present for the fall of Batman Forever <laughs> on your list. <laughs> if if we're talking about it from, like, an objective viewpoint, Batman Forever is a really stupid movie <laughs> that, like, it should not have gotten any sort of praise from me, I will admit that. The only reason I have any sort of subjective praise for it is because I remember seeing it in theaters when I was however old 12 or 13 or something and I remember that even though it's a stupid movie I just wish that Ben was still alive to hear <laughs> you say this. It's unfortunate. <laughs> you know, all I'm going to say about that is that I don't know if we want to announce the next movie that we're going to do, but what I can say is that maybe we can use some of the techniques that are found in that movie. Maybe we can resurrect Ben and let him know. Worst case scenario, I took copious notes on the cat revival scene. <laughs> so... We could, at the very least, work out some sort of cat-zombie revival and hopefully see Ben's luscious matinee manatee body just, like, clad in tight vacuum-sealed leather. We need some fan art for that. We could only dream. <laughs> about that. <laughs> uh.
Holy shit. We did it. I'm so proud of us. Yeah. This, uh, this is definitely going to take listeners all the way through a full night's sleep until they wake up. So, good morning, everybody. And this is also going to be a bitch and a half for me to edit. But that's okay. (laughs) I mean, I'm pretty sure it's all gold. There's very little ambiguity. Oh, yeah, no, it's, it's more just like doing little things, like making sure that we cut out all the weird background noises that keep happening on my end because I'm in a very loud portion of the bayou where it's totally not a heater but it's it's boats that are that are constantly driving by that's making all this noise stupid bayou boats I know right damn Hillbillies. Well, I guess they're not hillbillies because they're in the bayou. Bayou billies? Yeah, that sounds right. That was an NES game, The Adventures of Bayou Billy. Bayou Billy. I don't like Bayou Billy. I don't either. How's the support of manatees going right now? It's still going. We're, you know, there's issues with the pandemic, so people are not, you know, we don't expect people to, to give us money because, you know, we should, you should be saving your money because, you know, it's, like every dollar counts for a lot of people right now and uh, we can we can only hope that the next two ish months are going to not cause the downfall of humanity or at least the downfall of Matinee Well, you know, either way, I think manatees are probably better off than they were months ago, so. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so we just, we just have to hope that the next presidential administration will get the pandemic under control so that neither humans nor manatees or any household pets or anything like that will have to suffer too much. Very understanding of people's financial needs and savings at the moment. I will say that uh, prior to Ben's untimely death, (laughs) he did send me 
a Massey Manatee pillow upon a recent move. Oh, that's nice. It is fantastic. It is big. It is comfy. You know, it's a little bit uncomfortable having under the water all the time. You know, pillows aren't great in the bayou. They just absorb everything. But when I am on land, it is one of my go-to pillows. So worth checking out. Website. Yeah. So, if you want to check out all that stuff, it's at matineemanities.com and you can listen to all the other episodes that we've recorded with such classic movies as Exorcist 2 and Tomb Raider and Ernest Scared Stupid. Those are all films that we've watched and we regret that. It's really elevated the uh, lineup by adding Batman Returns. I don't know if it's a good or bad thing. Well, Considering that the last movie that we reviewed was The Exorcist 2, I'd say this might be the biggest jump in quality for films. Well, Sam, this has been fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. Even though we can't talk about the content, can say that I think the next episode will be another mega guest episode, right? We're gonna have our second ever trifecta episode. Still no Ben because he's that dead. One's... But um, that one I think. We're shooting for 24 hours, so you'll be able to just play that one all the way through a couple <laughs> nights of sleep. I, I don't know if we have enough bandwidth to upload a 24-hour episode, <laughs> but we can try, damn it. Don't worry, there's plenty to talk about for the next film. Excellent. Oh, yeah. Right on. Well, uh, I guess thank you, everybody, for listening to this episode of Matinee Manatees. And, you know, just tell a friend about it. And, you know... Have them listen to it too, because the more the merrier. I think last time we ended by 
urging people to vote, so I guess we just want to thank you everybody for voting. We did it, even though the Oswald Cobblepot in the White House is still being kind of a C-word. I think in a couple months things are going to be okay. So, stay safe, wear a mask, you know what, just try to enjoy life as best you can. Yeah, I agree with all of that. I've been Sam. And I have been Anthony. And I love you. Yeah, I, uh, I'm getting pretty sweet on you as well. Oh, th- thanks. I, I, I met the audience, but yeah. <laughs> Same to you. <laughs> good night, baby. <laughs> or good morning. Brought to you by our patrons over at patreon.com slash matineemanities. If you'd like to support the show, consider becoming a patron. Donations start at just $1 a month, and half of all proceeds after hosting costs will go towards actual manatee habitat preservation. You can listen to Matinee Manatees on iTunes, the Stitcher app, and YouTube. Our music was composed by Kevin McLeod. You can find this track and much more on his website, incompetech.com. 